It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And today, uh, our our chapters are all about uh, a typhoon. Yes, the typhoon has arrived. Uh, much foreshadowed over the past few chapters is basically as soon as we arrived in the Pacific, uh, the idea of the typhoon of a typhoon was uh, being presented to us by Ishmael. I mean, are you talking about? I feel like for the past several chapters, he's been saying nothing about how pleasant the weather is. No, he's been talking about it. But he keeps like it's. Even at the beginning of this chapter, he's referencing back to it, but this idea that you could forget in how pleasant it is, the, you know, the actual danger. And then the first line of chapter oh, 119, yeah. oh. the candles is, Warmest climes but nurse the cruelest fangs. The tiger of Bengal crouches in spiced groves of ceaseless verdure. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I, I feel like the way that it was being talked about before, I understood it as talking about the, the ocean more generally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed, like... I didn't feel like the specific idea that these waters themselves are that both like sort of calm, placid weather and sudden storms are characteristic of these waters off Japan. I didn't feel like that idea had been seeded until the beginning of this chapter. That's fair. Uh, but but I, I think you're right that it has, in a certain sense, been foreshadowed. It's just that sometimes the foreshadowing in this book is super obvious. Yeah, it's it's that I was thinking of in, in 114 The Gilder, there's this line about how um, one forgets the tiger heart that pants beneath the, the ocean and, you know, this velvet paw but conceals a remorseless fang. And yeah. now... And this is obviously continuing that metaphor. Yeah, yeah. It's just that I felt like before that was speaking about the ocean generally. I, I think it broadly is because, the, remember, the Pacific Ocean is all oceans. The heart of all oceans mm, and the, yes. the center of this world. The Atlantic and the Indian Oceans being but its arms, yes, according yes. to Ishmael. As I recall, yes. Yes. Uh, so, the typhoon has arrived. Yes. Uh, and uh, the Pequod uh, loses her sails in the storm. Um and, uh, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> immediately, um, it's described as, you know, uh, uh, the disabled mass fluttering here and there with the rags, uh, that have been like torn apart with the first, uh, hit of the tempest there. Um, I can't tell from the descriptions, which I'm sure would be more clear to someone who's much more used to like large commercial, you know, sailing vessels, whether or not some of these are reefed and some, or whether they were reefed before the storm hit, or if it was just in full sail and it just got absolutely shredded. Yeah, I don't think it would really be possible to tell from this description. I don't know how relevant it is to this concern. It's relevant to how much sailcloth they've lost. Ah. But I'm sure that the Pequod, having in its its hold such stores as would survive another flood, according to Ishmael, uh, yeah, I has, see. has put up sufficient sail to, you know, uh, as long as the masts aren't lost, to add them again. Yeah, I guess it hadn't occurred to me that they could use the remnants of a torn sail again. But you're totally right. Of course they could. Yeah. Um, or even just having extra sails in the... Um, 
Well, I'm I'm almost positive that they literally do have a whole set of extra sails because yes. I think they put those up later. Um, but your thing about sailcloth, like I'm realizing, yeah, okay, if the sail was reefed, which means basically the bottom of it is like kind of rolled up or, or bunched or the, up, or the yes, it's reducing the amount of sail that is uh, visible. Depending on the diff, there's different ways of reefing a sail, but it's basically just sort of foreshortening a sail, like uh, you know, shorting a bed. Where you, you make a bed so that if someone gets into it, they can't actually get their feet all the way down. Mm. It's like that for sails, which is the worst metaphor I've ever constructed. <laughs> but the the point being that if if the sail was reefed, part of it would be not like flat available to the wind, and so it wouldn't get torn away. And so theoretically, yeah. once they were able to take it down, they'd have that sailcloth and they could like use it to repair. Yeah, sails, or right? the sail might just be torn rather than like totally you know, destroyed. Yes, or throw or thrown off the boat. Um, or it could be that some of the sails were reefed and others were completely destroyed. Some of the sails might have been taken up. Basically, what I'm saying is that it's interesting to me that there isn't, it isn't, at least for me, isn't quite obvious whether or not all the sails got ripped off in a single burst. Basically, because I can't imagine that happening without it severely damaging the masts yeah, I in mean, like so a single burst. What he actually says is, Towards evening of that day, the Pequod was torn of her canvas and bare poles was left to fight a typhoon which had struck her directly ahead. Which did actually produce in me the image of the Pequod in one instant fully losing all of her sails. Yes, so... But that's not what happens. That's made pretty clear soon on because they are trying to, like, deal with, like, the tatters of the sails. So I, I realize that, like, by torn of her canvas and bare poled, he means, like... There is no effective sail left, yes. but it doesn't and mean that there's no like sailcloth attached to the boat anymore. And it's also possible that torn of her canvas means that they took down the sails that weren't immediately damaged or destroyed so that they are not sailing by any sail for the beginning of the typhoon. But that's also a safety measure. That's also a thing you can do to protect your ship so that you don't lose any mass. So that's why I'm saying that I'm sort of like, there's an ambiguity here, but the important thing is that there are no sails flying on the masts. They are yeah. bare cold. I really think that the Pequod was hit by this by surprise and didn't have the chance to take any sails down or reef mm -hmm. anything before they were torn by the storm. Because of the phrasing, like, bare pulled was left to fight a typhoon. Mm, yeah. He's not saying that they, like, prudently removed some of the sail and then that's some of them fair, were destroyed. Fair, yeah. It's they've they've been like rendered bare pulled mm. by the storm. Yeah. Um in any case. Anyway, yeah, so no sails left. The, this basically means that the Pequod is just going wherever the storm pushes them. Yeah, it's just and to some extent not going much at all. They're just right. they're just rocking and uh heaving in this immense typhoon that is compared to like a bomb landing on a town. Although not an airdrop bomb, because by bomb here they would mean artillery, like a, a cannon firing a shell. Right. I, I just want to make it clear that, like, at the end of this, the Pequod is in a situation of just not knowing where the hell they are or what direction uh, they're going. Ah, yeah. Um, because I think it, that's the, important. Yeah, but I'm sure that'll be... Made clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is explicitly discussed later. I just think, I think that uh, the fact that because they've lost all their sail... They're at the mercy of the storm in terms of direction, I think mm -hmm. is something that's like implicit to people who know yeah. how sailing works at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's also just the case that even if you keep your sails up during a storm, you can easily get knocked around because the wind is changing. It's intense. The ship itself simply cannot 
yes. do anything about the waves and the intent and the changing wind. So you are just basically trying your best to make it through the storm. Yes. No, that's. And that that's is the situation true. the uh, the Pequot is in. There's something interesting here as well, which is they're talking about uh, other damage done to the boat. Uh, what additional disaster might have befallen? And um, Starbuck uh, sees that Ahab's boat, the like the whaling boat, hanging off of its crane, has been hit by a wave coming up over the side of the boat and smashed. Yeah, like they, they've one of the major things they've been trying to do here to prevent storm damage is by is hoisting the whale boats up as high as they can in the rigging um but even though they've done that one wave managed to get all the way up there and uh yep lifted to the very top of the cranes as high as they can put uh his whale boat yeah and it it stove in ahab's whale boat yes uh stub and Sardbuck, meanwhile, are both desperately trying to uh, do this and getting on each other's nerves. Yeah, yeah. The Stub and Starbuck, um, and I, I would presume Flask too. Yeah, Flask so, must be. Yeah, no, here. it's it's mentioned Stub and Flask. All three mates are like basically just trying to like direct and manage things through this storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Starbuck and Stub have this conversation where, basically, uh, as you would expect, Stub is joking around about it and even singing. Uh, yeah. About just kind of how, like, ah, this is storms, this is the ocean, isn't yep, that funny? And yeah, the, the, the basic song is claiming that the, the storm is the ocean getting drunk, because the, yes. uh, the storm is the flip, you know, the, the, the rum drink that you stick the pot poker into. Yes, um, and uh, Starbuck is like, please fucking stop. Yeah, if you're a brave man, you'll shut the fuck up. And Stubb's like, but I'm not. I'm a coward. That's why I'm singing. And I'm not going to stop singing unless you cut my throat. Yeah, and yeah. It just... (sighs) And I want to point something out quickly before we move on too much about the language here, which is fascinating, because there's these little parentheticals throughout this chapter where I am reasonably certain, under normal circumstances... Ishmael would have had, like, a brief aside to say, the you know, quarter boat, it was Ahab's, etc. But here it's just a parenthetical that says Ahab's, to make sure you know. And we'll see this again later, and it strikes me as this, it's Ishmael trying to be more direct and, con- like, continue through the narrative of the chapter, rather than constantly spiraling off, which I think really adds to the sense of the urgency of this storm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't... Uh, I'm not completely convinced by this first example yeah, that, well, this, that, that, that this effect is happening here, but I do look forward to you pointing out other examples. Yeah, yeah, I'll you'll see... see another one in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I certainly do find it plausible that, like, the writing style of the book is, like, shifting here. Um... Mm-hmm. <sighs> You've also got actual dialogue, which is, you know, relatively rare in this book. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Um... Uh, I also really love um, Starbucks' response to Stubb here, which is, Madman, look through my eyes if thou hast none of thine own. Which is such a Starbuck thing to say. Yeah, yeah. And um, the thing that he's specifically trying to point out to Stubb is uh, Ahab's boat being stove in. And not just that, but certain uh, specific, uh, like, I guess, portents connected with that. Um, 
Yeah, Starbuck is, is interpreting things here. He's like, look, the wind is running directly over the, the bow of the ship, you know, against us, directly, um, you know, pushing us away from our goal, which is Moby Dick. And Ahab's boat is smashed in in the stern where he is wont to sit. His standpoint is stove, man. So Starbuck is reading this as like the world itself is conspiring to push Ahab away from Moby Dick. It's such a terrible idea. Yeah, like it, yeah, basically the... The storm itself is uh, try like forcing them not to go in the direction that Ahab wants them to go, and has like destroyed the place where Ahab would try to hunt the whale. Yes, um, and Starbuck is taking this as like you know in a very Starbucky way, but he, you know, he stops listening to Stubb explicitly, just stops paying any attention to Stubb, and just starts sort of musing on this in the in the storm that you know. Yes, actually, this storm could be sending us back home to safety and goodness and, you know, not terrible, terrible doom. It's at, This storm is actually, could be our friend if we just turned around and took the wind and went that way. If we went, if we let it blow us off course. Yes. Um, uh, he says, uh, round the Cape of Good Hope is the shortest way to Nantucket. Uh, which, you know, obviously that is not, like, literally true. At this time, but, yeah. but but on some level, like, he's basically saying the the easiest way to get back home at this point would be to turn around, go Run west. Run before the storm. Stop doing what Ahab is doing. Yes, yes. And I really like the line, the gale that now hammers at us to stave us, we can turn it into a fair wind that will drive us towards home. Yonder to windward, all is blackness of doom. But to leeward, homeward, I see it lightens up there, but not with the lightning. And... Leeward and homeward is re- drawing back to that very early chapter, the the leeward shore. Yeah, yeah, the idea that the um, you know, that wind drives you back from the howling infinite onto the shore, and that this is you know, this is a kind of danger of a, a shameful danger to Ishmael in the earliest chapter. But to Starbuck, it's like just the obvious, like you can turn this awful event into profit, into success. By accepting that you can't just drive yourself into the teeth of the storm and ride it. Yes. And uh, he says this thing about, like, oh, it lightens up, but not with lightning. And then, immediately at that moment, there's a crash of lightning and Ahab appears. Yes. Uh, Remember, Ahab's nickname is Old Thunder. Or rather, I should say, actually, okay, it's technically, it's not, there's not a, there's a, there's, there's profound darkness the, of the kind that comes after lightning, and there's a peal of thunder, and then Ahab is there. Yeah. Uh, and Starbuck asks who's there, Ahab declares himself as Old Thunder, and then suddenly there's a flash of lightning, as yes. if to light Ahab's way. Basically, yes. like, the lightning and the thunder are timing themselves <laughs> for Ahab's convenience and Ahab's drama. Yes, Ahab is absolutely getting, like, uh, full-on theatrical thunder and lightning here for best effect. Um, and yes, it's worth mentioning that it is completely pitch dark except when there's lightning because, uh, you know, no lantern is going to stay lit on this ship. They're groping their way around in the dark except for when they're very briefly and completely lit by lightning. Yeah, so it's, this it's, incredibly it's the dramatic. night also, like, yes. that's, that's part of this. I mean, although if it were the day, it would still be totally clouded over. Yes, but like, yeah. It, a, a typhoon like this, my impression is you basically get darkness at noon. Yeah, but so, it, is, it is nighttime, though. Yes. Um, and 
again, I want to go back a little to that that idea where um, he says, look through uh, mine eyes if you have none of thine own. And Stubb is like, how can you see better of a dark knight than anybody else? Never mind how foolish. And there's definitely the sense that, like, Starbucks insisting he has, like, eyes to see what nobody else can on this ship, even when he's literally groping around in the dark, because he already knows what the conclusion is that he's going to reach, in a different way than Ahab, but Starbuck already knows what he is looking for, and therefore he can interpret things much more than Stubb, who doesn't really, who just wants to see nothing, who just wants to, you know, he sees everything as a joke, whereas Starbuck sees everything as omens. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. You know, in, in various directions. So it's, it's an interesting interaction, and it's also, I just really like that idea of look through mine eyes. The idea that Starbucks being like, look, I have the clearest vision, even though literally we're both physically blind right now. I have the, I can see what's actually going on, and he's rebuffed. No one, no one sees what Starbucks sees, and therefore will not take on his vision. So it's, it's like, it's both almost heroic and futile to be like, look, don't you see this thing? And because they don't, they don't believe him. Yeah. Um, and at this point, there's a little bit of a, a sort of explanation of a, a technical feature of the ship, which is that, you know, on a ship, uh, there is a lightning rod, basically, you know. Well, there is on this ship. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, okay, okay. On this ship, anyway, there is, there is a lightning rod, but unlike a lightning rod that you would have on a building on land, it can't just be like a stationary piece of metal that goes into the ground. Um, it has to... Well, I was going to say, it can't be just a stationary piece of metal going into the ground, because it has to go far, it has to go further beneath the hull than just barely sticking out of it, which means that it would get caught on things and create drag. So Yeah, so basically it's impractical to have any kind of lightning rod that is just always out. Yeah. Um. So instead, what they have is something connected to like a metal chain yeah there's a lightning rod on the on the mast and that's permanent y yes but then at the base of it there's a long chain of links and then you throw that over the side and that goes down into the water for uh what, what the book describes as the perilous fluid since at this time and basically through the 1800s the the sort of metaphor and idea of electricity was understood as a fluid that builds up and like flows between things it's not a bad metaphor for understanding uh, electricity but in any case, uh, so the perilous fluid can be released into the water through the tip of the uh, of the chain. Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, like I, I, I know that electricity is not a fluid in the technical sense of like what the word fluid means in like physics, right? Yeah, like it's word, not a liquid. Right. It's not a liquid. It's not a gas. I think mm -hmm. gas is also a fluid, yeah. right? But in the like non-technical sense of the word fluid which is to say just something that flows i think electricity is totally that like electricity flows i mean it does but because electricity flows in a circuit and they're basically what i'm saying is that it's the act the mechanics of it there's a reason why we don't teach it as fluid as like as a but, fluid. but we totally do in, <laughs> in like in every like uh electro uh like in, in uh when you learn the basics of how electricity flows through a current you totally learn about like you learn about flow yeah, well, and you learn about, um, it's it's usually metaphorized to, like, a garden hose so that people can understand resistance, right? I guess. I, like, I the idea think is of, like, like the... thermo of, like, hydrodynamic metaphors that I've run into in electricity, but the garden hose is new to me. Oh, I feel, I feel like this is a really standard thing. Like, the idea of, like, oh, well, if the, if the pipe or hose is, like, larger, then more can flow through at a time 
versus if it's narrower. That's the metaphor that I've usually heard used to describe resistance. Yeah, I I don't think that specific one showed up in my education. Okay, well, fair enough. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm not trying to say that electricity is water. <laughs> I know it's not. I'm just saying that I think the metaphor is pretty... Uh, apt? Apt. Pretty, pretty reasonable, even in, like, the modern day. So I don't think it's... I think that the idea of an electrical fluid is very good and cool but i i don't think it's like a super apt metaphor i what i'm saying is that i but i'm not holding it against ishmael that he doesn't have 20th century electrical engineering knowledge i know i just wanted to justify that like i think that ishmael's kind of uh you know ishmael's understanding of what electricity is while it obviously is based on a prior scientific understanding doesn't feel that different from my a modern metaphorical understanding of electricity and i you know did take like advanced ap physics in sure, high school sure. i'm just saying that the basic thing he's saying is that you need to get the tip of the uh lightning rod away from anything that you don't want to get electrified and that's that's definitely true regardless yes. of the underlying structure Yes, absolutely. We've probably argued way too long yes. about the, the perilous fluid. Sorry. Yes. Um, uh, so there, um, Starbuck calls for the rods to be thrown overboard fore and aft. He, um, you know, he goes to the chains and Ahab stops him. Yes. And he has this bizarre and enigmatic statement of, let's have fair play here, though we be the weaker side. Yet all contribute to raise rods in the Himalayas and Andes, that all the world may be secured but out on privileges. Let them be, sir. So yeah, he's basically saying, like, if we were to use a lightning rod, that would be an unfair advantage against the lightning. <laughs> yeah, though we are the weaker side, yes. the He wants there to be, like, some kind of parody here. It, it would be cheating. Yes. That's but, what he's saying. <laughs> but he also says, out on privileges, and I'll contribute to raise rods and Himalayas in the Andes. He's saying... I would be okay with this if all the world could be secured against this. But I will not be, you know, I will not be the coward to secure myself against this alone. Out on privileges. Yeah. On, like, having a personal protection. Yeah. That's, that's my interpretation. No, I think you're right. I think he is basically saying, like, uh, I don't want to have a lightning rod because not everything has a lightning rod. Which yeah, is basically. bizarre, but... Yes. I mean, we'll see how he thinks about lightning soon enough. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then, uh, then they have St. Elmo's fire. Uh, yes. So do we want to explain what that is broadly? Yeah. So this is like a phenomenon that, a, a weather phenomenon that happens on ships during storms where, I mean, literally what is visible is like a glowing fire around like the, um. Around metal objects. Around metal objects. Yeah. So, so like any kind of, you know, like metal housing on a mast. Nails, uh buckles I, I a lot of things can catch you know i think it's actually not necessarily metal objects metal catches it more but it is yeah. anything that can act as like a, a anything that like so what wikipedia says is that it is created from a rod like object such as a mast spire chimney or animal horn oh interesting so anyway what's actually going on is that it's 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 a kind of plasma mm -hmm. um it's it's the Again, just read Wikipedia, I guess. The electric field around the affected object calls, causes ionization of the air molecules, producing a faint glow, easily visible in low-light conditions. So it's it's basically that, you know, during a thunderstorm, due to the lightning, there's, uh, you know, the air becomes ionized. Um, and uh, 
it um it it forms a corona around points yeah and and this this is also incidentally this has something to do with like the um the uh the fluorescence of nitrogen and oxygen in the air sure um so like that's why it's like blue or violet sure Um, i mean here it's presented as being basically stark white is the color described uh i mean i mean it's called like pallid and i think three tapering white flames oh you're right you're right I, I okay. feel like that one's straightforward. No, you're right. He does say it's white. <laughs> in, yep. in the first line. Yeah. I, I'm And obviously, like, St. Elmo's fire, it's a weird and, like, varied phenomenon. Yes. Um, I think that all we need to know is that it's a thing that occurs in storms where effectively the lightning and the, ener- and the ionization of the air create this bright glow, or usually pale, but here it's presented as, like, stark, brilliant, uh, coming off of points of things. So the masts, each of them having three points burst into like triple pointed flames there's nine burning lights in the sky yeah and and i think you know i feel like there's there's kind of a like certainly there's artistic license here the the saint elmo's fire is being treated as basically literally fire and very bright but i'm sure it's also true that like in conditions of total darkness it probably appears extremely bright right yeah and also this is like this is a storm to end storms. This is a typhoon, Mark. It's far stronger than any normal storm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, so, the um, and here's where we actually get the second use of the uh, little parenthetical. When uh, Starbucks says, look aloft, the St. Elmo's lights, parentheses, corpus sancti, corpusants, the corpusants. No, that's not an explanation at all, Ben. That's an oath. He's saying, it's a pun, kind of. He's saying, the St. Elmo's lights... Corpus Sancti, which is him saying, like, that's a swear, I think. That's him saying, like, the holy body, like, the holy body of Christ. And then he's saying Corpusance, which is a word for St. Elmo's fire. Doesn't Corpusance derive from Corpus Sancti? Right, yes. But but I think that, I think that's why he's using these two phrases here. See, I don't think that's, I don't think Starbuck would make a pun or an oath in the middle of that sentence. Starbuck's not a swearing man and certainly not a like Roman Catholic swearing man Mm. who'd use Latin. He's very Protestant. Yeah. I think that this is Ishmael or Melville giving us the context to understand what the actual word they would use, corpusance, means and refers to. Okay. Because it's like St. Elmo's fire, Corpus Sancti, the Corpusants. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Um, and then throughout the rest of the um, of the sequence, Corpusants is used consistently. Yes. Yeah. Maybe maybe you're right. I I I, I don't really know. Um, so I just, let's not spend too long. Like, okay. I I just think that it's interesting because this is precisely the kind of thing Ishmael normally goes into detail about. He will explain like, here's the name, here's where it comes from. Whereas here, it's just. Corpus Sancti, Corpus Sancti, you get it, we move on. Yes, no, I I think if you are indeed correct that this is like an Ishmael parenthetical rather than intended as something uh, Starbuck actually said, then yes, it is like a real change in style and it indicates a kind of like uh, uh, conciseness that we're Mm -hmm. not used to in the book. So yes, uh, I'm not like completely... you haven't fully destroyed my previous belief, but I think that your interpretation is totally valid and, like, fits with the point that you're making. Okay. Um. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, um, 
These are the candles. The masks burning with three tapering flames apiece are precisely the candles that the chapter is named after. Yep. Yeah. And uh, they are... Um, they... They're... Uh, you, you can tell this has become a kind of a desperate situation because the nature of Stubb's swearing changes. Yeah, Stubb, Stubb reacts to seeing them and instantly... I mean, I don't think it's even so much about it being a desperate situation as just being awe-inspiring. Stubb looks up, sees them, and his face goes blanks, and he says, the corpusants have mercy on us all. Like, And, you know, Ishmael even points out here that, you know, sailors swear a lot. Stubb obviously swears a lot. Uh, they'll swear in... He was, in fact, just swearing. He was yes. saying blast. He was <laughs> yeah. saying blast it about the boat. Like, he was looking at the boat and not the, the fire, and he was swearing normally about that. But then he looks up and sees the fire, and then he's like, uh, I mean, the corpusants have mercy on us all is, is its own kind of, like, oath. But it's not, uh... It's a, it's reverential and, like, you know, prayerful rather than just swearing. Yes. And, and uh, the, um... Ishmael says, in, but in all my voyagings, seldom have I heard a common oath when God's burning finger has been laid on the ship, when his mene mene tekalu parson has been woven into the shrouds and the cordage. So there's two things going on here. One, this idea that instantly on seeing St. Elmo's fire, everyone is struck by it, like it strikes you to the soul. But the other thing is the idea that the reason for this is that it is divine. It is God's burning finger saying weighed and found wanting. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, and uh, everyone is kind of, you know... Um, Frozen? Yeah. Enchanted, hypnotized by the like lights burning in the uh, at the peak of the sails. They're described as like sitting around with their reflecting eyes like a constellation. Yes. Um, and uh, meanwhile, the, the harpineers are all kind of like lit up terrifyingly by this yes they're um, you know the remember these are the heathen the pagan harpineers the non-white harpineers and each of them has their like has aspects of them like emphasized by the lighting and the racialized yes racial absolutely like, racialized to be honest like this is very like this this light is like turning them into like boogeymen like i it, it's I feel like that's slightly unfair, but not by much. Like, what the light is doing is that they are, uh, not, um, they are not sort of presented as being awestruck the way no. the rest of the crew is, and instead they are, like, rising up almost against the light. Uh, well, I wouldn't say against the light. I think there's an implication that they are almost, like, that they are being like they are not literally described as being lit up by the St. Elmo's fire, but they're described as as if that's the case. Yes. It's almost as if they are like like the parts of the ship. Mm. They, or, they're not, they're, so I will point out it's almost because Dagu, who's seen to who's described as looming up to thrice his real stature, is describing as being like the black cloud from which the thunder had come. So they're all it's more that they're like I guess reveling in it. They're like, we don't get an interior view of them. We don't get their emotions. But we no. get this sense that they're, like, enhanced, made larger against this backdrop of the storm. That they they stand out while all the other sailors shrink back. Yeah. I think there's a sense almost that they are, like, part of the storm, part of this fury of nature. Uh, certainly, as you say, we don't get an interior sense of them. I, I feel like they are kind of 
objectified by this. Yeah, they, they absolutely are. But I guess what I would say is that I think that exactly how to interpret that is something that has to wait until after Ahab's speech. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Because I think that we see later commentary on the Harpeneers and their reaction to it that fits with this here and makes it comprehensible, whereas at first it's just this intense image. Yeah. So, like, you know. Yeah. Sorry, that was a terrible sentence. So, like, you know. Uh, but I do mean that I think that this is a chapter that we should move through because there's a lot of stuff in it that is mysterious, that is intense, and that is building up to something. Yes. So, uh, the, the St. Elmo's fire, like, wanes, uh, sort of dies down, and now it's all completely dark again, um, and, uh, Starbuck bumps into someone and it turns out to be Stubb, uh, and he's kind of like, all right, well, uh, what do you think now, Stubb? Like, that thing about, may the corpusants have mercy on us all, that sure wasn't your, like, cheerful song from before. Yeah, it's, um, you're, you said you were going to keep singing in the face of all this fear, and now you're completely, like, dumbstruck. And Starbuck, frankly, it's kind of smug of Starbuck. I mean, yeah, it is, but I, I feel like it's an... I feel like it's a fair reaction because that thing Stubb was doing earlier of singing in the midst of the storm was genuinely incredibly frustrating. <laughs> um, and so I that's, think... That's not unfair. Uh, and then, you know, of course, Stubb has, like, an answer to that and is like, well, I still think it makes sense to be Mary, even though I did say that thing that made it sound yeah. like I was afraid. I mean, I um, think that's a little bit unfair to Stubb, because what Stubb says is, you know, um, yeah, yeah, no, I I reacted to them that way. I asked that the corpusants have mercy on us all, but will they not have mercy on good humor? Have they only got mercy for tragedy and sorrow, for long faces? And you know what? I think that's a good question in Starbuck's sort of theological frame. Starbuck's like, stop singing. Stop trying to make merry. React to the world as if it is as horrible as it is. Right. And this idea that, oh, well, is, you know, are you are we only going to be spared if we are, like, dour and sad and extremely Protestant? I mean, I guess. But the, the way that... St- Stubb is, his, like, justification for continuing to be his usual self at this point is he's saying, oh, I think this St. Helmo's fire is a good omen. I he, think He it, does do that, yeah. He's like, I think that, you know, our masts lit up like candles, that means we're going to get a lot of sperm oil and our masts will be like three big, you know, Spermacetti sperm candles. candles. And, uh, I, I'm not, I mean... I mean, yes, he is desperately trying to find a way to make this hideous apparition into something that Stubb can live with, but it's not that different from Starbuck's effort to be like, look, yes, this storm seems hideous and horrible, but that's because if we just followed it, it would take us away from Moby Dick. So it actually could be a good thing. Yeah, like, I both suppose of them that's are, fair. Both of them are trying to, in reaction to the storms, this unbridled fury of nature and this almost unnatural natural phenomenon of St. Elmo's fire, both of them are trying to understand it in a way that allows them to continue to exist. Yeah. And Starbuck says, see, this proves that you have been existing wrong because you have not had the awe and terror of the world that is necessary. And Stubb says, I, I think that good humor and, you know, seeing good omens and things is equally valid. Yeah, and, like yeah. He's not framing it intellectually like that, but that is basically, I think, a large part of what's going on here is that Stubbs making the case for himself. Does the world only have mercy on long faces? Yeah, this is fair. Uh, anyway, uh, then the, then the, the corpusants flare up again. Um, and Stubbs says again, the corpusants have mercy on us all because 
he's clearly very intensely emotionally affected by these, as is everyone. Yes, uh, and and now there's like a sort of tableau. Yeah, a tableau. The, the word tableau has been used before in this chapter, and I think it's really apt just to like the way that this weird light lights things yeah, up. Yeah, and everyone freezes during the light. Like, it's like a lightning bolt, but longer, where you briefly see everything in... Oh, there's a great line earlier describing um, when uh, Ahab's path is made plain to him by elbowed lances of fire. Yeah. Uh, so there's this, you know, this idea that suddenly the world is lit up in the lightning and, uh, you know, then shaken by the thunder and darkness. And so you have these moments of action frozen and everything visible around them. And it's in those tableaus that everything happens. Yeah. So what is visible here is um, Fidala, who is uh, kneeling at the base of the mainmast, um, in front of Ahab, but facing away from Ahab. Yeah, and below the doubloon, which is on the mainmast. Yes, and below the flame, which is also on the mainmast. And so I think there's a very strong suggestion here that Fidala is, uh, you know, worshipping this flame. Yes. And and worshipping the flame is represented by the doubloon also. And and facing away from Ahab as he does so. Yes. Ah... Um, Meanwhile, there's also this bizarre and fascinating thing, which is that uh, up above in the rigging where uh, a bunch of sailors are trying to keep a spar from falling loose, so one of the cross pieces of the mast, um, and they're all like frozen by the light and staring up at it, so there's like this mass of men hanging pendulous off of this spar all together, like, you know, tied on, gripping it, looking up at the flames. It's described as being like a knot of numbed wasps from a drooping orchard twig. Uh, And meanwhile, the rest of the crew described as being like the standing or stepping or running skeletons in Herculaneum. Yeah, Herculaneum is uh, basically... Pompeii. It's a city that is right next to Pompeii. So yeah. he's comparing it to the way that like people's bodies were just uh, preserved in their motion. Yeah, like it. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen pictures of like what the the bodies covered in volcanic rock yep. at, at Pompeii or Herculaneum look like. But it's, I have. But our readers can go look it up. They yeah, have the go, internet. Yes, go look it up. It's really weird and and upsetting. Yep, and... yep. And it's this image of like sort of life frozen in death like nothing has changed everything is is petrified that way literally tableau yeah and uh so you have this bizarre like hanging above him he has the crew around me as the crew and ahab is uh ahab does the most ahab thing he's ever done yeah so he uh he 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 orders i I guess probably starbuck right because it's starbuck who is trying to Whoever has... Whoever is near him, yeah. He seizes the rods, the lightning rod, like the chain from it, the end that's supposed to go over the side, and holds it in his hand, saying, I would fain feel this pulse, and let mine beat against it. Blood against fire. So, if if lightning strikes the mass now and the rod, he will be instantly struck by lightning. It will be transmitted directly to him. He is daring it. Yes. And he also, like... Holding that in his left hand, holding his right hand high, he puts one foot up onto Fadala's back like a stool. Yes. So this tableau just becomes so much wilder with that action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think 
you know, remember the thing I was saying before about how I feel like Fadala and Ahab are, are kind of opposed, that Fadala mm. like, worships or reverences or serves some kind of power that Ahab is arrayed against? I, I think, think that's this, basically confirmed here, This yes. image is really presenting Yes, that. and in fact, here is where Ahab's speech, which begins with a reference to that, is, and uh, we discussed that we're going to basically read this speech because it's it's super good. We're gonna there's a stopping point in the middle, so we're going to go to there and then continue on. Yeah. So uh, but, let's uh, just go for it. Go for yes. it. Yes. Uh, so this is Ahab turning his face up to the like burning light on the masthead, holding the chain in one hand, raising his hand. I can the visual image for me is so strong. It's yeah, so intense. Absolutely. Oh, God, I can't believe they don't have a woodcut of it. Oh, God, I know, what right? What could possibly have done justice, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. But I would absolutely love just a woodcut in the style of this book of Ahab in the storm uh, in what is possibly my favorite speech of the entire book. Okay, let's, let's do it. Enough preamble. <laughs> oh, thou clear spirit of clear fire, whom on the seas I as Persian once did worship till in the sacramental act so burned by thee that to this hour I bear the scar. I now know thee, thou clear spirit, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. To neither love nor reverence wilt thou be kind, and e'en for hate thou canst but kill, and all are killed. No fearless fool now fronts thee. I own thy speechless, placeless power, but to the last gasp of my earthquake life will dispute its unconditional, unintegral mastery in me. In the midst of the personified impersonal, a personality stands here. Though but a point at best, whensoever I came, wheresoever I go, yet while I earthly live, the queenly personality lives in me and feels her royal rights. But war is pain and hate is woe. Come in thy lowest form of love, and I will kneel and kiss thee, but at thy highest come as mere supernal power. And though thou launchest navies of full-freighted worlds, there's that in here that still remains indifferent. O thou clear spirit, of thy fire thou madest me, and like a true child of fire, I breathe it back to thee. And then, sudden repeated flashes of lightning, the nine flames leap lengthwise to thrice their previous height. Ahab, with the rest, closes his eyes, his right hand pressed hard upon them. So, this is Ahab. First of all, we know where Ahab's scar comes from now. Yeah, he totally was hit by lightning. He was he was worshipping fire in the form of lightning, and he was hit by lightning. Supernal power. Yeah, so that's, first of all, simply confirmed. That he risked the lightning and did not, you know, and understood it as like, you know, God and the power of God, and when he was struck by it, he lived. Uh, but more than that, uh, you know, he says, I as a Persian once did worship. So that's that's the proof right there. Our Parsi, Fadala, is absolutely intended to be sort of in worship of this power, this force, this fire. That this is clear spirit of clear fire. Clear spirit of clear fire, exactly. Which is this, like, blazing force in the heavens that is straightforwardly the most divine thing we've seen yet. And remember when Ishmael uh, compared the corpusants to uh, God's burning finger writing Mene Mene Tekeluparshan? Yeah. So Ahab is looking at weighed and found wanting at the finger of God and saying, you have no command over me. You can destroy me, but that's all you can do. 
I am, you know, I am here. And I love this phrase, the personified impersonal. Yes. Because oh. he's, he's saying all of nature, all of this like vast impersonal world is like contracted here into a form that I can yell at. It is, mm-hmm. it is, you know, God is the personified impersonal. The lightning, the storm is the personified impersonal. It's the world writ large, you know, almost a pantheistic image, but is personified. It has a personality. You can interact with it. This is the author of the world. Yes. <sighs> um, and it is against that that he stands his personality, his selfhood. Yeah, yeah. He is, <sighs> he is in some sense, like, you made, you made a point that, like, in he is kind of dealing with a a certain sense of pantheism, a, yeah. a, a divine that is like present in everything of nature. However, he is declaring himself to be in some sense, not of that, like yes. created by that. He, he acknowledges, uh, of thy fire, thou madest me, but he is saying I'm my own being. Yes. If, but a point, and this is slightly speaking ahead, but his, and I think also it's shown up before He's not talking about his body at all. He's talking about his self, his personality within him, his mind, his sense of himself. Because one of Ahab's, I mean, constant struggles that we see and that we know is that his body has betrayed him. He's lost his leg. He cannot do these things he once could do. Uh, You know, we literally have seen his, you know, as Ishmael understands, his body and his soul splitting from him in the night and fleeing before he catches up. So his personality is not... Like, it's not that here, the edge, the end of the world is my body, my skin is the barrier. No, it's the thing within me that is me is the thing that the, that the world cannot touch, even though I am clothed in the world. And I, I think it's very, like, fascinating that he calls this the queenly personality. Yes. And, and who feels her royal rights. Yes, there's a, there's a feminine quality, a, a femaleness to this idea of, well, the soul. Yeah, and personality, and I don't think that's totally uh, like unprecedented in like um, you know the the um. There's a lot of Christian theology that has that call. Yeah, yeah, and and like the uh, you know like the Latin word that is usually translated as soul, Mm -hmm. anima, uh, is is a feminine word. Yeah. Um, is 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 pneuma feminine? I'd assume so, but I don't know. I'm I'm gonna look it up real quick. But Latin and Greek roots are not my strong point. Um. Pneuma being the Greek word that would usually be translated as soul. Um, (sighs) But I also really like this this idea, but war is pain and hate is woe. You know, if the world were kind to me, if the world were willing to abase itself to, like, actually try to befriend me rather than overawe me, Ahab says, he would, you know, he would embrace it. If the world were kind, he wouldn't have this war with the world. But because the world comes in the form of overwhelming power, trying to cow him and crush him, therefore its right worship is defiance. And, and he almost, I think, in this like uh, uh, lowest versus highest thing, I think he is kind of implying like, yeah, sometimes the world does come to us in, in, in the form of love and then we might, yeah, reverence it. But that is its lowest form. Mm-hmm. That That is just its kind of like, base appearance that's not its highest truest nature i think it's that and also i think simply it's that it's not it's like the world is most and most intensely cruel it's you know and there's something almost abasing about its lowest form of love you know this idea that it's like kneeling because it's it's almost the idea of look you accuse me of hubris i mean 
Has, has anyone accused Ahab of hubris? Yes, Starbuck has. Everyone has. It's very clear Ahab's doing hubris. But the world is what who's, is refusing to be humble. The world is refusing to come to Ahab and instead saying that he must kneel before the world. And for that reason, he refuses to kneel. Yes. He'd be willing to kneel if the world kneeled first. Yes. Uh, by the way, just do want to <sighs> check in about that grammatical gender thing. The word pneuma is neutral. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about what exactly <laughs> that means because of different translations of the Bible and the yeah, word yeah. that is used for the Holy Spirit, but that's a little ancillary. Yeah, to yeah, I don't, talking I don't, about here. I think that's the wrong weird sacred text to see in this particular passage, as just, we will get to. I just wanted, because I mentioned the gender of the yep, word yep, pneuma, yep. I just wanted to make it clear that I looked it up, it's neuter, and there's a whole separate thing about this, but yes, it's not quite relevant yes. to what we're doing right now. God, I also love the phrase, launchest navies of full freighted worlds. Like, the idea that the world is being launched as a warship to hunt Ahab. Yes. Uh, or full freighted worlds, plural. Uh, but yeah, no, Ahab is, Ahab has declared his defiance, and it very directly in the face of God. Yeah, and it's just so great. Ahab is like, you know, strike me down if you can, God. And then there's fucking lightning. It happens. He gets what he asked for. <laughs> well, he doesn't get struck by lightning. Okay, yes. There is lightning. Yes, and all of the, uh, um, and the fire on the masts, you know, bursts higher. I think it's described as leap lengthwise to thrice their previous height. There's a lot of threes in this chapter. Three masts, three flames on each mast, and the masts triple in, uh, and the flames triple in height, uh, which, you know, not unchristian symbolism. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, do, we do you want to continue? Yeah, yeah yep. why don't you read the, the rest? Yes, so Ahab con continues having covered his eyes from the flash and from the fire of the uh, corpusants. I own thy speechless, placeless power. Said I not so? Or was it wrung from me? Nor do I now drop these links. Thou canst blind, but I can then grope. Thou canst consume, but I can then be ashes. Take the homage of these poor eyes and shudder hands. I would not take it. The lightning flashes through my skull. Mine eyeballs ache and ache. My whole beaten brain seems as beheaded and rolling on some stunning ground. Oh, oh, yet blindfold, yet will I talk to thee. Light though thou be, thou leapest out of darkness. But I am darkness leaping out of light, leaping out of thee. The javelins cease. Open eyes. See or not. There burn the flames. Oh, thou magnanimous. Now I do glory in my genealogy. Thou art but my fiery father. My sweet mother, I know not. Oh, cruel. What hast thou done with her? There lies my puzzle, but thine is greater. Thou knowest not how came ye. Hence callest thyself unbegotten. Certainly knowest not thy beginning. Hence callest thyself unbegun. I know that of me which thou knowest not of thyself, O thou omnipotent. There is some unsuffusing thing beyond thee, thou clear spirit, to whom all thy eternity is but time, all thy creativeness mechanical. Through thee, thy flaming self, my scorched eyes do dimly see it. O thou foundling fire, thou hermit immemorial, Thou too hast thy incommunicable riddle, thy unparticipated grief. Here again with haughty agony I read my sire. Leap! Leap up and lick the sky! I leap with thee, I burn with thee, would fain be welded with thee. 
defyingly I worship thee. So. So, this is Gnosticism. Yes. This is just straightforwardly Gnosticism. When he says, uh, thou knowest not thy beginning, hence callest thyself unbegun, is literally a tenet of, like, Valentinian Gnosticism. I think of Ophite Gnosticism. Most of the Gnostic, uh, like, heresies of the early centuries uh, CE are very explicit in that the Demiurge, the creator of the world, the god of the Bible, does not know that he is not unbegotten, uh, does not know that he is not omnipotent, but that there is a pleroma, a world of aeons and higher beings and, like, pure spirit rather than physical reality that is beyond that demiurge who creates the world. And it is in ignorance that the demiurge enchains the universe and traps the human soul. And one might call that pleroma, that world of spirit, unsuffusing, which powermobydick.com helpfully defines as not spreading out. It's something that exists beyond the world but doesn't enter into the world. Yes, except <laughs> in glimpses and sparks of divinity, the thing that is trapped within a human, the personality, that single point. The queenly personality. Yes, because, because the icon of the, like, representative pleroma and the mother of the demiurge and often with the demiurge the mother of humanity because there's the demiurge is not a good son we'll put it that way uh is sophia wisdom who is the feminine principle and where is she what if what has he done with her that's yes, the big mystery exactly where that is ahab's sweet mother i think that it is more or less incontrovertible, and I have actually talked with people who've studied Moby Dick a bit more, have mentioned that apparently Melville would have met a scholar of the, a 19th century scholar of Gnosticism and Gnostic heresies on, like, an ocean voyage they both took, and so may have talked about it pretty extensively. So there's no reason why he couldn't have run into at least Irenaeus's and other, like, heresiologists' account of Gnosticism. Gnosticism has kind of had a big revival recently in terms of interest and, like, media depicting it because when you say recently i mean since the discovery of the nag hammadi library in like the 80s or 90s yeah, i can't I, remember the specifics yeah but, i just wanted to make it clear that you meant since the 80s or the 90s. yes our entire lives but <laughs> yes we, we're living in it's it's the 21st century gnosticism is cool now but what i mean is that the kind of gnosticism we've got here is entirely available in irenaeus and the other heresiologists that would have existed and been you know read and available prior to the discovery of Gnostic texts that's often seen as like the, you know, the revival of interest in Gnosticism in the 20th century. So it is entirely possible for Melville to have had all of the kind of like metaphors and imagery that he puts in Ahab's mouth in this situation. I just want to make it clear that it's not just, oh my god, this fits Gnosticism. It is very, very carefully calibrated Gnosticism. Yes, I, I think uh, other bits that are very obviously mm -hmm. like... All thy creativeness mechanical. Yes. We've talked before about how the word mechanical means something about the Demiurge. Yes, well, uh, we brought up Numa earlier, which is specifically the one of the divisions of uh, people made by Gnostics is between pneumatics, those whose soul is sort of active and are seeking the soul, and mechanical people, people who are physical and uh, sort of dull and disconnected from these higher things. And the Demiurge is fundamentally mechanical. Yeah, um... Uh, so yes, that is that is absolutely the case. And also, thy eternity is but time, is very much of this same thing, where it's like, yes, 
all of the qualities attributed to God are true, but there is something beyond that. Yes. Um. Uh, and, like, I also love the phrase, thy incommunicable riddle, thy unparticipated grief, where Ahab basically says, I pity you, because I at least can grasp there's something higher behind you. And you can't. You're entirely unable to, like, you know, my, my visual internal metaphor is that the Demiurge cannot, like, look over his shoulder and see the thing shining behind him, only his shadow cast over the world. Yes, and and I think there is also a sense in which Ahab is kind of identifying Yeah, with, 100%. Like, he's saying, you know, like, when he talks about um, uh, unparticipated grief. Yes. Uh Ahab also has an unparticipated grief. Yes, and Ahab unparticipated is... here, just to make sure I know, because that's a weird word. I understood it as other people cannot empathize and share in your grief. Yes, I think that is what he means. That, like, I, I and the Demiurge both have, like, a fundamental tragedy that no other person can actually, like, understand or experience yes and at the same time he's saying we both have this and i understand that you have yes, this yes he's well when he says i fain would you know i leap with thee i fain would be welded with thee i think what he's saying is you know much like when he said come in my lowest form of love if the demiurge were willing to like recognize ahab as an equal he would happily embrace him as like the only entity who can understand ahab's tragedy or at least nobody has yet so you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that, you know, when we say Abraham has hubris, <laughs> he's literally saying, God, we should talk. <laughs> yeah, uh, listen, buddy, I'm going to, like, uh, you know, storm my way to the gates of heaven to defy you, but it's only because I respect you so much and you're my father and we have so much in common. Yeah, defyingly I worship thee. Yeah. His, Ahab has a theology and it's pretty rad like i i love these i love this speech i love the the fact that just the curtain goes up and it's gnosticism like the the veil of nature is rent the shape of the cosmos according to ahab is revealed in this speech and suddenly all of these things like what is the role of fadala what is you know how does ahab react to this world what is his theology we've had such intimations and understandings but here in this speech that I think is meant to be difficult to understand, because I don't think that any of the crew can make heads nor tails of what Ahab is saying. I don't think they're going to know the Gnostic references he's making, literally Gnostic references. Yeah. Uh, and so there's this sense in which this is revealed and the reader can get at it, but Ishmael doesn't go into any detail about this. Like, many times Ishmael has tried to interpret Ahab for us or discuss, you know, discuss the world. Here, this happens, and at no point does Ishmael say, this reminds me of the heresiologies of Irenaeus. No, <laughs> Ishmael is silent. Ishmael is gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, there is an interpreter here. Oh, yes, there is an interpreter. Uh, do, you, do you mind if we, uh, I, 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 I want to talk yeah, about the next section? Yeah, let's continue, absolutely. We have, I think we have, God in what we need to get out of that speech, and while we may return to it, we should move forward. So the next thing that happens, as after, uh, you know, just as when Ahab, uh, you know, uh, just as the the lightning timed itself to Ahab's speech, now uh, something else is timing itself. Starbuck cries out, uh, the boat, the boat, look at thy boat, old man, because uh, his harpoon, okay, so the harpoon is like, 
wedged into Ahab's boat, right? And it's yeah. still there. It hasn't been knocked loose by the storm. But the sheath on its metal tip has fallen away. And St. Elmo's fire is wreathing that metal tip. I love it so much. The fire, like the hand of God that burns on the mastheads is now burning on Ahab's like cursed harpoon. Yes. and Not in the name of God, of the father, but in the name of the devil. Yes, yes. And uh, Starbuck takes this as a as an incredibly ill omen. God, God is against the old man, forbear. Um, Tis an ill voyage, ill begun, ill continued. I really, because I really, I want to continue this line. Let me square the yards while we may, old man, and make a fair wind of it homewards to go on a better voyage than this. And this is, something fascinating happens here. Because Starbuck is basically, by square the yards, he means, like, let's... Turn around. Yeah, turn let's, around. Let's put square the yards and move, put the, um, put the wind square behind us, follow this home. It's the thing he was speaking of earlier. We can turn this disaster into a fair wind, abandon this voyage, sell the sperm we've got... Go on another hunting voyage that's actually doing what it's supposed to. Re-establish the order of the world that is supposed to exist. And I think it's worth mentioning that what he's proposing doing here is actually impossible right now. They can't square the yard. Yes. They, they have no do sails. It, they cannot do it during the storm, no. But the entire crew moves to go do it. They hear Starbucks say, let's square the yards. And in the way that previously the crew has, like, leapt to do Ahab's bidding the instant he just mentioned it. Yeah, they are filled with terror. And they are filled with, like, Starbucks will. For the moment, all the aghast mates' thoughts seemed theirs. They raised a half-mutinous cry. Yes, this is nearly a mutiny where they, Starbucks says, you know, turn about, let's square the yards. They all run to do it, and explicitly, even though there's no sails, and Ahab... Ahab. Ahab scares them off of it. He he throws the chain back down and he grabs his harpoon and brandishes it as a like a torch and says that he will kill anyone who tries to change their bearing right now. Yes, he will transfix the first sailor that but cast a line. So you touch a rope, I will impale you with this like with the wrath of God, with this cursed harpoon meant for Moby Dick, burning with a corpusant. And as he, you know, wields it, everyone is, like, you know, petrified by his aspect and still more shrinking from the fiery dart that he held. Yes. Uh, and then Ahab says, All your oaths to hunt the white whale are as binding as mine, and heart, soul, and body, lungs, and life, old Ahab is bound. And that ye may know to what tune this heart beats, look ye here, thus I blow out the last fear. And he blows out the St. Elmo's fire on his torch. He blows on it and it goes out. And I want to stop here and very briefly mention that I believe you can physically do this because if you disrupt the ionized air around the oh, St. Elmo's yeah, fire, of course. it breaks. It will not, like, it can reestablish itself, but by blowing on it, the ionization pattern can't continue and it will disperse. So he can actually snuff out St. Elmo's fire. And then, but the symbolic moment of this mechanical operation is intense and i love this last line do you actually i've been reading so much do you want to read this line uh yeah the last sentence yeah as in the hurricane that sweeps the plain men fly the neighborhood of some lone gigantic elm whose very height and strength but render it so much the more unsafe because so much the more a mark for thunderbolts so at those last words of ahab's many of the mariners did run from him in a terror of dismay so very explicitly 
Ahab is on the one hand personally terrifying. He's, his will is inflicted upon them. But in another way, the reason they run is because they are afraid that God is going to strike him down. They are fleeing his strength and power because it seems to, him, to them that he is like calling for lightning. Not because they fear his like murderous hand. Yeah. But because they fear being near someone who is so obviously God's accursed. And I, and I think it's very striking that, on the one hand, Ahab totally accomplishes his goal here, which yes. is to cow the crew, get them to follow his will. But on the other hand, what he's saying is, I extinguished the last fear, and actually, he Inspires is inspiring terror. Yes. Yeah. Like, he, he, he can accomplish his goal in terms of maintaining his control over the crew and getting them to pursue this goal of Moby Dick, but he can't actually do what he's claiming he can here, which is to turn them all into Ahabs. Yes, they he cannot make of them himself. And I want to roll back slightly also to, uh, in the, you know, when he says, I own thy speechless placeless power, said I not so, at the beginning of the second half of the speech, he said, you know, he's blinded by the light, and he says, uh, you know, thou canst blind, but I can then grope. And he also says, you know, take the homage of these poor eyes and shut her hands. You know, the fact that I'm having to cover my eyes. I would not take it. So Ahab does not want fear and cowering and, like, you know, the homage of people being unable to look upon him or being unable to handle his power. What he wants is for people... He wants participation in his grief. Well, mm, I think there are a couple things he might want. He does want participation in his grief. Absolutely, I think he wants another Ahab. I think his behavior in ar the arm and leg totally yes, reflects yeah. that. But... He also suggests that the right worship of a god such as the one he perceives is oh, defiance. So I think Ahab wants defiance. You we'll think talk that, more about yeah, this yeah, later. Yeah, we will. We really will. That is, a fast, <laughs> that is a fascinating read. And my preliminary suggestion is that I think that possibly one of Ahab's flaws is that he does not embrace defiance. Is that he, while at the same is that to some extent he is, you know, replicating this this tyrant god upon the ship. But moving on from there, because I think you that's a really good point. That's really fascinating. Um, moving on from there, uh, maybe we should go to chapter 120, because I think we have, ex yeah. we have burnt out the candles. Yeah, let's... <sighs> let's go. Cute. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, chapter 120. The deck towards the end of the first night watch. So we have another, a little bit of like the play blocking that yeah, happens this here. Is a, this is a very short chapter um, mm -hmm. where uh, this is this is just a dialogue between Ahab and Starbuck at the helm. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, basically Starbuck brings up a, a very normal practical concern here, which is that the main topsail yard, so the, the line that's connected to the main top sail, important line here, uh, yeah, it, not an important line, but I just well, mean like an important rope on the ship. Yeah, is it? Hmm. Main topsail. Well, it's, it's the yard. I I thought it was the yard arm, but yeah, yeah. Anyways, yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, no, yard yard arm. I, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not. You you were so it could be a halyard or it could be a yard arm because a halyard is what you use to raise a yard. So I I don't know for certain if this is a line uh, because I don't know what the lee lift is. Oh, okay. The oh the lee lift says power, power Dick. Com. The a lift is a block and tackle that prevented the end of a yard arm from sagging under its own weight. So okay, yes, so actually, yes, this is a yard arm, and the a, a yard arm being like a piece of wood. Yeah, and basically, 
Starbuck is saying, hey, we have to bring down this yardarm, which means you can't fly a sail off of it. Mm -hmm. We have to bring down this high up yardarm because it is uh, like coming out of its uh, holder. It's, it's sagging. It could fall, which would be incredibly dangerous. It could break. Basically, here's a practical concern that the storm has created. And, uh, you know, I want to bring it down to fix it. And Ahab says, strike nothing, lash it. So, you know, he does say, fix the problem, but by the way you fix the problem is by tying it down tighter rather than bringing it down to fix it. Yeah, and, and basically, and in fact, he says that if I had skysail poles, I'd sway them up now, by which he means, like, if I could pull up more yard arms so that theoretically more sail could be attached to them, <laughs> I'd do that. Which, <sighs> Starbuck is just, sir? In God's name, sir? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and Ahab just, well. So, like, he, Ahab's just saying, I want you to do some absurd things that nobody would ever do in a storm. And Starbuck is just like, that makes no sense, but I guess I have to. I don't think he goes to do that. He, he's like, well, he doesn't go to put up sail poles. What, what he does is he moves on. He says, uh. The anchors are working, sir. Well, Shall I get them in more? <laughs> you'll see what happens in two chapters. Oh, right. That so that's what's yes. So anyway, but the lashings are in fact being made. I just mean he's not actually putting up new. Uh, he's not putting up sky. No, holes. we're not. But that's because we don't have them. That okay. You're right. Yes, I. You're totally right. Ahab's bizarre will is being enacted. Anyway, so the next question is, uh, and actually, I don't fully understand what's going on here nautically. So maybe you can explain this to yeah, me. Yeah, I'm. The, I'll be honest, this one's a bit of a puzzler for me as well. The anchors are working. Shall I get them inboard? So I don't know what inboard means. Is that onboard? So I think that what is actually happening is... So normally, the anchors on a ship like this basically hang like visibly in like a little socket on the side of the ship so that they can be dropped and like dropped directly into the water because they're mm. huge and heavy. So you've seen ships that have like an anchor up at the by the bow just hanging right. off of it on more modern ships as well. So basically what I think is happening is working. I think it means they're like swaying and uh, yeah, things. Yeah, and he's asking, he is asking, should I bring them onto the deck? Yes, onto the deck and tie them down. Um, Which in fact, oh yeah, no, I, I had not realized this, but you pointing out the thing with uh, chapter 122 has made it clear to me. The next two chapters are both Ahab's orders here being enacted. Yes, because Ahab's order about the anchors is strike nothing and stir nothing but lash everything. So no, do not bring the anchors on deck, just tie them down harder. Yes. Um, and uh, he also says, um, you know, quick see to it and then turning away is like, ah, he takes me for... Um, I think his, his line is the hunchbacked skipper of some coasting smack. It's like, no, this is the Pequod and I'm Ahab. We don't do reasonable things to prevent ourselves being sunk in a storm here. We take the storm on headfirst. Yes. Uh, and I, I, I don't really feel like we... Like, there's more Ahab talk here, but I honestly think it's basically just him saying, bow to a storm? Me, never. Ha, huh, I spit at this storm. I think there's one line that is, is, is of meaningful, which is, you know, strike down my main topsail yard. Oh, glue pots. Loftiest trucks were made for wildest winds. And this is important, like, first of all, it's a wild statement because the, you know, the higher sail is also going to get the most, I mean, bend in the mast from higher yeah, winds. Yeah, loftiest trucks were made for wildest winds. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, That's not true. Well, what he actually means is, this brain truck of mine now sails amid the cloud scud. What he's saying is, 
like intellectually the wildest wins the most intense opposition is precisely when you need the sort of highest most abstract most genius mind and he's metaphorizing from his own like wild exploding mental state to the ship and saying no the pequod is going to directly represent me yes absolutely that's what he's saying yeah none but cowards send down their brain trucks in tempest time and he's basically saying that Starbucks, like, desperate desire to be like, no, no, we can find a way to make this work. We can go back and have a normal voyage that doesn't make my soul and brain explode. That's cowardice to Ahab. Right. All right, so... He also uh, calls the storm. He's like, you know, uh, I'd even take the storm for sublime if I did not know that the colic is a noisy malady. Right. He's literally calling God a whining baby. Yes. <sighs> All right, so... That's uh, that's Ahab's orders for how to handle this storm. And then, yeah, as we pointed out, the next two chapters are people carrying those orders out. Yep. Um, chapter 21, Midnight, the Foxhole Bulwarks. 121. Oh, one, yeah, yeah, 121. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> this is uh, Stubb and Flask lashing the anchors down to the side um, and uh, talking as they do it, as yep, usual. Yep. And as, as often with these two, it's Stubb saying some, like, wild Stubb. Bullshit. And Flask being like, uh, what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Stubb is, uh, it starts with Flask saying, No, Stubb, you may pound that knot there as much as you please, but you'll never pound into me what you were just now saying. Yeah, so it starts in the middle of the conversation, and Flask is being like, Stubb, I don't believe what you were just trying to... Yeah, 100%. He's like, weren't you the guy who was just saying five minutes ago that, like, whatever ship Ahab sails in is, is in great danger... As though it were loaded with power be- barrels and friction matches. And to be clear, like, and these are early friction matches, Lucifers, which were known to just spontaneously combust sometimes, um, especially when there's a bunch of them together. And to be clear, he doesn't just say it's in grave danger. He says that it would have insurance, high insurance premiums for a voyage. Because remember, Flask is very financially minded and kind of like straightforward and blockheaded. Yes, and then Stubbs' response is basically like, well, what if I did? Maybe I changed my mind. Yeah, he specifically says, I've part changed my flesh since that time. Why not my mind? Which is presumably referencing the idea that, like, your body fully replaces itself every seven years, which is, like, a common, kind of an old wives' tale. I, I don't know if that was, like, a thing that people I, said. I don't know, but he did say part changed my flesh, and I think he means, like, I've eaten food and, you know. Yeah, sure. Anyway, so, uh... <laughs> So now he just kind of goes on to, like, pick apart this, like, metaphor that he used earlier. It's like, oh, well, I, I said we would have, I said it's as though we have power bar- powder barrels aft and boxes of lucifers forward. Well, if we had those, how po- how could they possibly catch, catch fire, fire in, in this rain. storm? Yeah. yeah, you're we're soaked. And a lot of this, uh, a lot of his side of the dialogue is just talking about how wet he is. Like, how yeah. he's just covered in water. Um, you know, he also says... Uh, you're Aquarius, so the water bearer flask. So he's he's absorbed that like uh, astrology. Yeah, he he looked up the zodiac in his Earlier, almanac, and yeah. he was like, "All right, I can use this to make fun of flask yep, yep, later." Yep. <laughs> and he also, you know, through this, they're busy like tying down the uh, the anchors. So there's moments where it's like, "No, no, lift your leg, flask, and move, move aside, flask." Yeah. Um, but and- he also argues that. Holding a mass lightning rod in the storm is the same as being on a ship that doesn't have any lightning rod, because either way, if your mast gets struck, you're fucked. So really, Ahab doing that was no different from any other vessel that just doesn't have a lightning rod, because most of them don't. And I'm just like, Stub, Stub, it's completely different. You're 
Why? Yes. How are you like this? Yeah, and he's just like, oh, you just want everyone to have, like, a little lightning rod on their head. You're so, like, precious and concerned with safety. You're so sensible. It's easy to be sensible, Flask. Why don't you? Any man can half an eye be sensible. And Flask's, I think Flask's retort here is very good. You're like, I, I don't know that stuff. You sometimes find it rather hard. And I, I do think it's true that Stubb finds it difficult to be sensible. <laughs> yeah, Stubb's, Stubb's main defense against the cruelties and absurdities of life on the Pequot is to be deeply insensible. Yes, um... And, like, honestly, I don't really have anything to say about this last paragraph. It's, I, I really think it's just Stubb joking around. It's Stubb joking around, but there's a few lines in it that I really like. One of them is, tying these two anchors here, Flash, seems like tying a man's hand behind him. Oh, yeah, he does suggest that, like, perhaps they are tying the anchors down so tightly as though that they're never going to be used again. Yes, like they're wa- walking someone to an execution with his hands tied behind him. Yes. Oh. Um, and also, he has this lovely uh, line. I wonder, Flask, whether the world is anchored anywhere. If she is, she swings with an uncommon long cable, though. And that's just, like, just throwing that in there. Like, the idea is, does the Earth, does the world have some kind of, like, fixed point that it's connected to you that you can hold on to and rely on or does it not and if it does flask can't sub can't see any evidence of it the world like moves wildly back and forth on a long cable and i think that's just a really again it's a good moment of looking into stub's sort of mentality which is that he you know he swears oaths that he has always been jolly he takes everything as it comes he tries always to uh, you know, respond to it with humor. And even when, you know, he sees the corpusants, he doesn't want that to, like, permanently end that jollity because that's what he has to go on. Yeah, yeah. I think Stubb honestly embraces being, like, kind of inconsistent and hypocritical. Yeah, 100%, especially in this chapter. Yeah. But yeah, he's, I think on some level, he's basically saying, look, uh, hypocrisy is the way to successfully, like, enjoy life because otherwise you're going to be desperately trying to hold on to something that just isn't isn't stable or, like, anchored, at yeah. least according to him. And again, I think Ahab certainly has an anchor. It's just that he's maybe throwing it overboard tied to his leg. And uh, <laughs> Starbuck has an anchor uh, back in Nantucket. There are people who have fixed things in the world, but Stubb hasn't got any, and he seems to basically be acting like, and this means I can just bob back up to the top every time. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's go to the next chapter, which next is incredibly not... short. It's incredibly short and kind of racist. It is. It's incredibly short. It's definitely racist. Uh, I think chapter one twenty two, midnight aloft, thunder and lightning. the The major thing that I think is of interest here is just that this is Tashtigo lashing the main topsail yard. So again, yeah. this is that order that 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 absurd order that Ahab gave, uh, just being carried out. So we can only assume that Starbuck transmitted to, this yep, order. Yep. And the other thing I would note is that Tashtego's like, attitude towards the thunder and lightning as he's literally up in a storm is basically, ugh, what's the use of this? What a bother. I just want to go drink. Yeah, like, yeah, he's he literally says, uh, what's the use of thunder? Which is... We uh, don't want thunder, we want rum. Give us a glass of rum. Which, I mean, frankly, fair enough. Yeah, um, it, it is like, at the same time, it's like, it's definitely depicting him as kind of like, much like Stubb, a little bit insensible to things. Yeah, but it's thoughtless. also incredibly like cool-headed and unconcerned with the fact that he's literally up among thunder and lightning at the top of the ship, and his only his frust and he's just like doing the work and going, "Oh, what a bother!" Yeah, yeah, I, yes, yeah. yeah. 
that's that's basically what this is. I mm-hmm. I, I I it's hard to say much about this because it's literally like very short and has a bunch of eye dialect that we're not reproducing. Yeah, because uh, I don't think any of the specific uh, way it phrases things is that important. Yeah. <sighs> Shall we move on? Uh, yeah. Let's move on to chapter one twenty three, the musket, aka the Starbuck chapter. Yeah. So, um. This chapter starts out with uh, an explanation of uh, how things have been going at the tiller of the Pequod. Yeah, I gotta say, that's completely disconnected from the rest of the chapter. It just states it, and here's what I think is going on there. I think Ishmael's at the tiller for part of this. Oh! And he, so what happens is, it mentions that during the most violent shocks of the typhoon, the man at the Pequod's jawbone tiller had several times been reelingly hurled to the deck by its spasmodic motions, even though preventer tackles had been attached to it, for they were slack, because some play to the tiller was indispensable. So, like, in order to not have the tiller get wrenched by a wave or the turning of the ship, it has to be able to move a little bit. And the jawbone tiller of the Pequod um, has had preventer tackles. So basically, ropes and locks and tackles attached on either side of it so that it can only go so far in either direction. But it needs enough slack that it can go a little in either direction, which means that the uh, sailor tasked with holding the tiller will occasionally get knocked by it moving like... I'd I'd assume like a foot or two feet to the side very sharply. So Ishmael has just been spending the night occasionally getting launched across the deck by the tiller going Yeah, yeah. With, you know, the jawbone of a sperm whale. Yeah. Um, Anyways, that has nothing to do with the rest of the chapter. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can maybe see a certain possible metaphorical connection, but let's get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Um, I think it's mostly just communicating how... Though this, though things are under control, the storm is still, like, intense and m- making things, you know, rock from side to side. Yeah, and and uh, apparently the um, the compasses are just spinning completely around. Yeah, yeah. Which is just a very disturbing mm, thing to yeah. do. You can also take it as both the steering and the, like, pointing have, fa- have failed in this storm. Yeah. Like, the, the jawbone tiller cannot be controlled or directed... And the, I keep saying jawbone tiller, and the compasses are spinning wildly. There's nowhere to go and no way to go. Yes. Uh, and, uh, but it does happen that eventually the typhoon uh, abated so much uh, that they're, they're able to get the remains of the major sails down. Yeah, and, and, uh, are allowed, and mostly just cut away and they just fly off. Like the feathers of an albatross, which sometimes are cast to the winds when that storm-tossed bird is on the wing. So literally calling this boat an albatross. Yeah, and they're able to put up new sails, which are reefed, so that they're able to basically actually sail yes, in they the can, storm. Yes, they can begin taking some kind of course as best they can. Um, and they, they take that course that they've, been at, that they've been ordered to, the east-southeast course, which is directly into the storm. Because it's now possible to do that again. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, as the um, as it's possible to aim the boat now and you know direct it, they find that uh, as they go east southeast, um, watching the compass, there's a good sign. The wind seemed coming round astern. Aye, the foul breeze became fair, and so uh, all of the crews like the wind is with us. We're not going to be in hell anymore. Yeah, everyone's everyone's celebrating, and. Uh... Starbuck has standing orders uh, at any time that the wind changes to go report that to Ahab. So any one of the twenty-four hours. So literally round the clock. If the wind changes, Ahab must know. So Starbuck's order of operations here is first to uh, like trim the sails, like take set the ship yeah. to 
set the ship to be sailing as efficiently as possible in the direction that Ahab has yeah, set. however reluctantly and gloomily. Exactly. Follow Ahab's orders first to get the ship in line in the exact way that Ahab wants it, and then to go tell Ahab about that as soon as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And he mechanically went below to apprise <laughs> Captain Ahab of yeah, the Yeah, every time that word appears in this book, from now on, but also before this, it's just been like, ah, uh, ah, uh, mechanical, you say. But... He does, and I think it's important to note, this is already a disobedience because his his standing order is to report immediately. Yes, but and he, he stops. Yes, he pauses at the door of Ahab's room and it's this very kind of stressful uh, scene where uh, the lamp is swinging back and forth, making those like fitful shadows. And then... The isolated subterraneousness of the cabin made a certain humming silence to reign there, though it was hooped round by all the roar of the elements. So he's descended from this, la- you know, the crash of waves and wind and sails. And then, the sound of people singing. Yes, into the cabin, and it's into, like, silent. Yes. Humming silence. And there's also the musket rack. Yes. And, and they're sort of highlighted by this swinging lamp. And, uh... Starbuck was an honest, upright man, but out of Starbuck's heart. At that instant, when he saw the muskets, there strangely evolved an evil thought, but so blent with its neutral or good accompaniments, that for the instant he hardly knew it for itself. And you're going to read Starbuck's speech? Yeah. Because you mentioned that this is like, this is a soliloquy. This is straightforwardly like a Shakespearean soliloquy, and it's really good. So so please go ahead. Yeah. He would have shot me once. Yes, there's the very musket that he pointed at me. That one, with the studded stock. Let me touch it. Lift it. Strange that I, who have handled so many deadly lances, strange that I should shake so now. Loaded? I must see. Aye, aye, and powder in the pan. That's not good. Best spill it. Wait. I'll cure myself of this. I'll hold the musket boldly while I think. I come to report a fair wind to him. But how fair? Fair for death and doom. That's fair for Moby Dick. It's a fair wind that's only fair for that accursed fish. The very tube he pointed at me. The very one. This one. I hold it here. He would have killed me with the very thing I handle now. Aye, and he would fain kill all his crew. Does he not say he will not strike his spars to any gale? Has he not dashed his heavenly quadrant? And in these same perilous seas gropes he not his way by mere dead reckoning of the error-abounding log? And in this very typhoon did he not swear that he would have no lightning rods? But shall this crazed old man be tamely suffered to drag a whole ship's company down to doom with him? Yes, it would make him the willful murderer of thirty men and more if this ship come to any deadly harm. And come to deadly harm, my soul swears this ship will, if Ahab have his way. If, then, he were this instant put aside, that crime would not be his. Ha! Is he muttering in his sleep? Yes, just there. In there he's sleeping. Sleeping. Aye, but still alive, and soon awake again. I can't withstand thee then, old man. Not reasoning. Not remonstrance, not entreaty wilt thou hearken to, all this thou scornest. Flat obedience to thy own flat commands, this is all thou breathest. Aye, and sayst the men have vowed thy vow, sayst all of us are Ahab's, great God forbid. 
But is there no other way? No lawful way? Make him a prisoner to be taken home? What, hope to wrest this old man's living power from his own living hands? Only a fool would try it. Say he were pinioned even, knotted all over with ropes and hawsers, chained down to ring bolts on this cabin floor. He would be more hideous than a caged tiger then. I could not endure the sight, could not possibly fly his howlings. All comfort, sleep itself, inestimable reason would leave me on the long intolerable voyage. What then remains? The land is hundreds of leagues away, and locked Japan the nearest. I stand here alone upon an open sea, with two oceans and a whole continent between me and law. I. Aye, tis so. Is heaven a murderer when its lightning strikes a would-be murderer in his bed, tindering sheets and skin together? And would I be a murderer, then, if— And slowly, stealthily, and half sideways looking, he placed the loaded musket's end against the door. On this level, Ahab's hammock swings within, his head this way. A touch, and Starbuck may survive to hug his wife and child again. Oh, Mary, Mary, boy, boy, boy. But if I wake thee not to death, old man, who can tell to what unsounded deep Starbuck's body this day week may sink with all the crew? Great God, where are thou? Shall I? Shall I? The wind has gone down and shifted, sir. The fore and main topsails are reefed and set. She heads her course. And he doesn't. And Ahab doesn't even wake up. Ahab's response is, Stern all, oh, Moby Dick, I clutch thy heart at last, which He's is... He's muttering in his sleep. This, these, this, these are the things Ahab says in his dreams of hunting Moby Dick. And Yes. And Starbuck realizes he's still asleep, and... He, the the musket shakes, Starbuck seemed wrestling with an angel, which we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but he puts the musket down, he turns aside, and he tells Stubb to go wake him and tell him about the wind. Yeah, God, he's too sound asleep, Mr. Stubb. Go thou down and wake him and tell him. I must see to the deck here. Thou knowst what to say. And it's like, I don't think Stubb does. Uh, yeah, I, it's... So, yeah, let's talk about this. Yes, this is so it is a Shakespearean soliloquy. It's practically Hamlet. It's Yeah, this is this is Starbuck wrestling with the moral question of whether it would be acceptable, possible for him to kill Ahab right now. Whether that mutiny would be justified because he sees he sees that that mutiny is the only way that Ahab can be stopped. And it's the only way to save the lives of the entire rest of the crew, the only way to prevent Ahab from making a murderer of himself. Like, in a certain sense, killing Ahab right now is the only way to save Ahab. Yes, um, from Starbuck's perspective, he would be the one who takes on... Like, that crime would not be his. He would be the criminal, the murderer. Rather, when we say... Sorry, sorry. The crime of killing the, the crew of the ship would not be Ahab's if the crime of killing Ahab were Starbuck's. Yes, uh, the way I read it was... The crime of killing Ahab would be my crime, not his. So suddenly it, it changes the dimensions. I know this terrible crime is to be committed, 
but I would have to commit a terrible crime to stop it. And so Starbuck is wrestling with this, uh, with to some extent, his, his Christian morality, his sense of what is right, where I don't think that Starbuck is really prepared, as we see here, to do something that he knows to be in some abstracted sense wrong to prevent what seems much greater wrong. He cannot damn himself. And I think there's another option that he considers that he also can't accept, which is to become a madman. Because he talks through the idea of like, well, would it be possible? Is there no lawful way? Could I do what you are sort of supposed to do in a in a case of mutiny? Like the the lawful kind of mutiny. At is least to as... lock the captain up because he has broken the ship's charter or whatever. Yeah, and like take you'd... him back to civilization. You don't have the legal right, even as a, a sort of lawful mutineer, one who has justification for mutiny. You don't have the right to execute the captain, but yeah. you do have the right to confine him and take him to be tried. Yeah, yeah. and even that right is like you'll have to make your case when you get back you don't it's not effectively much like everything out on a boat the ultimate question of right is will the crew follow you but for starbuck it's also a moral question it's a question of what will happen when you get back to shore as well but but his ultimate objection i mean he thinks it through in a couple different ways and he does say you know um he does say only a fool would try it. Like, yes. could you possibly hope to tie Ahab down? And I think there's a certain sense of, like, maybe it wouldn't be physically possible to tie Ahab down. Like, yeah, maybe I, he would break loose like I a tiger. I think it's much more, you could not, like, on deck, you could not go up to Ahab and say, I'm mutinying, you have broken, you know, broken every law, you need to be, you know, you need to be imprisoned, we're not going to hunt Moby Dick. Ahab would be able to rally the crew to him as he has every time before. However... Or at least Starbuck thinks so. But the fundamental reason that Starbuck objects to this, and I think this goes along with saying only a fool would try it, is I could not endure the sight. Inestimable reason would leave me on the long and tolerable voyage. It might technically be possible to overcome Ahab's, like, power. You could tie him down and keep him confined for the rest of the voyage. Like a tiger in a cage. But you would go mad. Or yes. rather, Starbuck would yes, go Yes, Starbuck, mad. who would have to be captain of the Pequod in Ahab's absence. He would absence. probably have to sleep next to the room where Ahab was confined. I don't think it would matter. I think that no matter where, he'd be able to... like Could not least... possibly fly his howlings. There's exactly. nowhere he could go. And like, here's the thing. I'm not even sure that that would have to be physical. Just the knowledge that Ahab's mind is working against him. Like, almost like Hannibal Lecter, you know? Like, there's this yeah. figure, see, you know pinioned chained down like or like prometheus chained down and who nonetheless tortures the even the thought of it tortures starbuck he can't deal with the possibility and he also gives up the possibility of just leaving like he suggests oh you know like he can't just take one of the whale boats and sail off for land they're hundreds of miles away and the closest land they could get to is japan there is no abandoning ship at least according to starbucks reasoning just as there is no law to call upon that's nearby either to stop himself or to stop ahab yeah i I think the land is hundreds of leagues away and locked japan the nearest the land is that (laughs) that's kind of iambic anyway there's a lot of very nice rhythm in this section i stand alone here upon an open sea with two oceans and a whole continent between me and law i think that is a fascinating couple of sentences because in some ways he is saying there's no one to back me up here because land is so far away. Yeah. Like, the law can't help me. But at the same time, he's also realizing the law can't stop me. Yes. Um. He's effectively, Starbuck is, I think, in this moment, more than at any other time, 
understands that he is upon the Howling Infinite, that Nantucket is not merely like, you know, you can just turn around and get to it, that he has abandoned all of the sort of sureties of the land and he's treading water. And I honestly think that the fundamental reason that Starbuck doesn't go through with this is not actually a moral one precisely. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that Starbuck is unwilling to become a murderer or unwilling to become a madman exactly. It's that he's unwilling to return to Nantucket to his family as a murderer or a madman. Mm, so the very th the very reason that would allow him to act to act this way to go beyond his, what he considers the basic limits of the world is also the reason that he can't because he yeah. would be unable to return to his family. Like he's he he's almost there. He's thinking a touch and Starbuck may survive. I could kill him right now and save my own life to hug his wife and child again. Like, why would I be saving my life? To go home to my family, but I'd be going home to them as a murderer. I can't. Like, I think when he says, oh, Mary, Mary, boy, 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 that is not him saying, oh, I miss you so much. I want to go mm. home to you. That is him saying, oh, I can't do this because of you. Mm. Because after that, he says, but if I wake thee not to death. That, yes, yes. Like, I, I, think, I, I think that's a very good reading. I also just want to point out that he literally cries out to God upon his cross. Absolutely, yes. Great God, where art thou? That is, that is, uh, that is, like... Father, Father. Why hast thou forsaken me? Absolutely, 100%. Um, but, uh, but, be, you know, unlike Christ, he is not just... He is not at the point of no return where his, like, sacrifice of himself to save everyone else is accomplished. He is the mom in the moment where he can choose to do that, but he doesn't choose it. Yes, he cannot sacrifice—Starbuck cannot sacrifice himself in the sense of himself as a moral man, as a, as a sane, a reasonable, a lawful man. He cannot—that is not something that he can sacrifice, and to some extent— that is, you know, there's there's the famous uh, Borges uh, argument about uh, Judas in um, his uh, in this fascinating little sort of pseudo academic short story talking about pseudo academic in like style. It's a very good short story talking about the idea of some sects, some heretics, which he has mostly I think invented, have sainted Judas because he is the one who was necessary to the salvation of humanity, and therefore. Judas, in some sense, has made a greater sacrifice because he is damned. And, you know, you can argue about the theology of that, but I think there's this element of, like, the damnation of, in this case, disobedience as the, like, punishment, for, as the, like, requirement for salvation, rather than obedience to walk into, you know, the lion's jaws, obedience to be killed. Yes, and and let's let's get this oh, to yes. let's get this to let's Israel, win. which by the way, fuck fuck uh, power move. Well, okay, maybe not, but it's just okay. So wrestling with an angel. This is an event in Genesis when uh, uh, Jacob is like traveling with his family to cross a river, and he comes upon in uh, Jacob, who is like one of the you know kind of patriarchs of. Uh, you know, of the Israelites, Israelites. in the Bible. Yeah. Um, he, he sends his family over this river uh, and is left alone. 
and then wrestles with someone. And it's, it's as sudden as that sounds in the Bible. Uh, it's just all of a sudden there's a, a man there. Yeah, and, and he... Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Genesis, yes. uh, is that chapter, chapter 32, 32, verse 24. Yeah, yeah, so Jacob wrestles with this man, and, and traditionally this entity is understood to be an angel, a messenger from God. Um, the actual understanding of what this being is is, I think, quite ambiguous yes, in the Bible. Yes, there are people who have argued that it's, literally god people have argued that it's an angel etc and so he wrestles with this being all night until the breaking of day and then the the angel let's call it an angel that's what the book calls it yes um doesn't isn't able to beat jacob but touches his thigh and puts it out of joint so then jacob has to stop wrestling and he says and uh the angel says let me go And Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And then the angel changes Jacob's name to Israel. And that's why they're called the Israelites. And the word Israel means, and and Jacob asks, what does that mean? Uh, Or or, uh, rather, Jacob doesn't ask, but the angel defines that that the word Israel means like I have wrestled with God. Um, In the, is this the King James that I'm looking at? Probably. Yeah, this is King James. Uh, The King James Bible way of saying what the angel says about it is, uh, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And uh, th- that is definitely translated in other ways, in other... Yes. But, but the point being that, like, Israel in some sense means, like, wrestled with God and prevailed. Yes. And that is what Starbuck is being challenged to do here, to become like the biblical patriarch, the biblical hero who actually does confront God. Like this is, this passage is, I think, uh, a part of the Bible that in many ways is like troubled for Christian theology. Yeah. Um, because the idea of like fighting with God and prevailing is not usually a part no, of Christian no. thought. However, like Jacob or Israel is a an important figure yeah, um, yeah. to biblical history. And, and I think that, what part of what's happening here is well here's my question do you think starbuck won or lost i mean he wrestled with an angel is the angel trying to turn him away from killing ahab or turn him towards killing ahab i think that what happens in what happens that makes jacob into israel Mm -hmm. is that he doesn't yield and even though he is harmed like his leg is out of joint Mm -hmm. he insists on like what what is in within his grip and he is fundamentally changed into a new person Mm -hmm. and if starbuck is wrestling with the musket I think that to prevail in the way that that Israel did would be to kill Ahab. It would be to take the act that would change Starbuck into a fundamentally different person from this point forward. Um, But I agree with you that there is a genuine ambiguity here. And the book does not tell us whether he prevailed. uh, 
It just said, Starbucks seemed wrestling with an angel, but turning from the door, he placed the death tube in its rack and left the place. I do think that the but is indicative, because yes. it, saying he seemed wrestling with an angel, but turning from the door, kind of, I think, but as a turn there suggests... That he's lost. Yes. That the angel is uh, is turning him away from Ahab. And there's a... This is fascinating to read in the context of, you know, the whole Gnosticism of Ahab, because it's not as though the book has set, like, fully siloed out the theologies of different characters. So this, this angel must be read in conversation with the storm. It is within, literally, still in the typhoon. The musket is full of powder that could ignite. The question is whether he will light the fire. Yes, and also, this is the same musket that Ahab pointed at him. He's seizing Ahab's weapon and the possibility of turning it on him. I think there's a sense in which, you know, that whole thing about right worship is defiance. He would become like Ahab to kill Ahab. He would strike against this terrifying force of nature that has consumed his days and nights and seems fit to drive him to death. And indeed, that's also, I think that the, the, uh, I think that, the way that Israel's leg is injured mm-hmm. is resonant with Ahab's injury, has Ooh, always been resonant with Ahab's yeah, injury. Yeah. Ahab wrestled with God and his leg was changed forever afterward. And I think Starbuck isn't willing to take the fight that far. Yeah, I think um, I think Starbuck ultimately... Starbuck, he has reached the point where he believes God has forsaken him, but he still chooses to hold to his... You know, to hold to who he is and who he was. And he refuses to... You might say that he refuses to change. You might say that he fails to defeat the the convention and the certainty of a Protestantism that holds him back. You know, again, I think Hamlet is such a good comparison point because, you know, had not the Almighty set his compass against self-slaughter, to paraphrase Hamlet slightly, like, Hamlet's whole to-be-or-not-to-be speech is kind of predetermined by the fact that he has been told that suicide is unacceptable. Yeah, and, and there's also a, a similar moment of like wrestling with the decision that uh, that Hamlet has is deciding whether um, to, to kill... kill Claudius while he's praying, right? Yes. Um, and uh... well, in fact, yeah, that's a much more similar one. But I believe that comes shortly on the heels of the to be or not to be, if I remember correctly. But it's been a while since I read Hamlet. The short version is. Yes, he has this moment of there is an evil king who is like currently helpless and. For Hamlet, it's, it is a theo- theological decision. The argument he makes, if not maybe the reason he decides, that's open to interpretation, is if I kill him now at prayers, he'll be guaranteed of salvation because he'll be shrived. I can only kill him after he's done more of his evil so I know he goes to hell. Yes. And that's fascinating in the context of Starbuck, whose concern is about becoming a murderer, uh, to, un- you know, to have this sort of... He has no, like... It's not about whether Ahab will be shrived or saved, because he doesn't care about where Ahab's soul goes. He only cares about whether or not he can, you know, remain himself and save himself. I mean, I think that on some level, like, this is not something that is stated explicitly. Mm -hmm. And I do actually think that 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 crime would not be his thing is is a little interesting, because I do think, I think that uh, the interpretation that you suggested that that crime would not be his means the crime of Ahab's murder would not be Ahab's. It yes. I think that's a valid interpretation, but I also think that the one that I brought to bear, which yeah. is if he were killed right now... He would not commit the crime and therefore would not be damned, yes. I, well, yeah, I think that on some level, Starbuck... 
I think it is implausible that Starbuck might think that Ahab would go to heaven if he were killed right here. Mm. But I think there might be a certain sense that to go to heaven as like a blasphemer is maybe not, or go to hell rather, to go to hell as a blasphemer is maybe not as bad than to go to hell as the murderer of over 30 men. Yes. And, you know, I think on some level, I don't know how much Starbuck cares, like Starbuck cares about blasphemy. It's come up, but I don't know how much he thinks blasphemy will get you damned versus simply getting you smoked. Because there's this very strong sense of like, you know, if you just turned back now, you could have a favorable voyage. It's not the blasphemy is the problem. It's the following through on. It's the physical act of blasphemy, not merely the spoken act. Yeah. Uh, Starbucks very concerned with physical prosperity and, you know, uh, industry and continuation and profit. All of these things that weave you into the general society that Ahab has scorned and that is now completely absent from Starbucks protection. Yeah. <sighs> also, I want to say... He mentions that this fair wind is only fair for Moby Dick, and he's now willing to say that Moby Dick is evil. He's willing to say that Moby Dick is accursed, and... And that, and that there is such a thing as fair for Moby Dick, that, like, Moby Dick wants to fight Ahab, right? Yeah, yeah, that what? this will... He is... He has come around to crediting Ahab's idea that there is some kind of rivalry here, or at least he's been thinking about death by Moby Dick for long enough that the whale has become you know, that that agent that Ahab sees it, at least somewhat to him, it at least creeps into his language. And I think that's interesting as well, because he's now gone from, there's no reason we can be sure we'll find Moby Dick. It's a weird obsession. Surely he can be turned away from this eventually to, okay, no, this is a fated confrontation that will destroy this ship because it is Ahab's hubris made manifest and I need to stop it. Like he genuinely believes in this moment that a wind that blows them east is blowing them towards Moby Dick. Yes. Even though... That's like, the season on the line. He does say, you know... He does talk in, in the speech about how, like, Ahab has destroyed his means of, of uh, navigation. Yeah. Uh, you know, that he is... Um, gropes he not his way by mere dead reckoning of the error-abounding mm -hmm. log. So on some level, Starbuck believes that Ahab doesn't know where the hell he's going. But, at but he's certain that he will find Moby Dick. Yes, and that in finding Moby Dick, he and all the rest of the crew will be killed. Yes. Yeah, and so, that Moby Dick wants that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This, or at the very least, he's willing to credit this in his moment of crisis, if only to create the justification that therefore... We are guaranteed doom, not just by like a long, slow starvation or anything because he can't find a specific whale, but because he will find the whale and it will kill us off in like a week. Yes. This weekday. This, yeah, this day week. In this my day copy. week. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> right. I just misremembered. Um, but yes. Which, uh, by the way, that's like a confusing phrase. It just means like this week. Yeah. A week from today. Yeah. And see, I, I read it as this day, like this day or a week from today, like, you know, it's Monday, this day, so Monday next week. Yeah, Not, I, yeah. That's literally what it means. Okay, yeah. cool. Anyways, also reference to locked Japan. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Definitely. Japan is there, but they can't go there. Yes, exactly. It's it is used as the again in this in this text. It's used as the symbol of like the ultimate island, the utterly impenetrable island that has that you know is full of uncertainty and mystery to the Western sailor. Uh, so yeah. Um, that's, you know, again, set directly before, uh, the Perry expedition. Yeah. Um, we have, do have one more chapter to do, uh, this, uh, episode. Yeah, let's, let's do the needle later, I think. Um, I think we can do the needle now, but up to you. Okay, well, it's, it's, uh... I think I have time. All right. And we can cut this bit. Yeah. So... 
chapter 124, The Needle. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, there's some very beautiful, like, you know, the, the storm has passed. It's the calm after the storm. Much less reported upon than the calm before the storm, but it's a thing. Yeah, and, and there's there's still, like, uh, strong waves and wind, but yes. because, you know, because the storm is over, those are now, like, pushing the Pequod forward. Yes, and the Pequod has the wind behind it, driving east, in, you know, driving uh, east. The sun is behind it. You know, Ahab looks back and sees the sun. He's like, yes. This is like a chariot. I draw the sun behind me, um, you know, as we, you know, the the water is like full of gold and light. It's described Specifically, as... Specifically, I think the sky is clouded over, so the sun is visible via what are sometimes called god rays. Yes. Um, which are like, a, you know, basically certain cloud conditions can make it so that you can actually see like visible rays coming from yeah, the sun. Yeah, exactly like they do in like, you know... When an animated movie or a movie that has a budget has like wants to show you like the majesty of dawn or something, they'll often have these visible rays shining out, and those are called god rays, and they do occur. Yeah, I've seen them very beautifully from boats, actually. Yeah, um, so they're seeing that kind of thing from the sun, and you know Ahab's kind of uh, looking at it and, and like celebrating it. It's like ah yes, you know we're like we have the sun behind us as though we're the sun's chariot, and the winds are the horses pulling us forward. Yeah, yeah, I bring. Ho, ho, all ye nations before my prow. I bring the sun to ye. Yoke on the further billows. Hello, a tandem. I drive the sea. So he's in good spirits. He's he's completely unaware that Starbuck almost killed him. He is... But... Uh, but, yes, the sun is behind him and they're traveling east and it's sunrise. Wait a second. Yeah, it... That is not how the sun works. If you're going yes. east in the morning, you should be sailing towards the sun. Yeah, he the the steersman who again I, I enjoy imagining as as Ishmael here, though I think it's a slightly less uh, cut and dried. I think Ishmael is here thing where he says, um, you know, where are we going? He's so east, sir," said the frightened steersman. "Thou liest," smiting him with his clenched fist. So Ahab just decks the steersman and is like. Look at this. There is a sun. The sun is rising behind us. And you say we're going east? What is wrong with you? Yeah. And uh, everyone is like confused. And Ahab takes a look at the compass and realizes, staggering, that the compasses are just flat wrong. The comp- Well, what he realizes is that the compasses say that they are going east as they travel away from the sunrise. And for a moment, uh, Ahab is like, what the sun is rising in the west and the crew are like <gasps> and then Ahab's like no the compasses were spun around by the storm they've been remagnetized wrong yes they have turned needles yeah and this is you know uh like he he's like oh yeah the 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 storm turned our compasses you must have heard of this starbuck and starbuck is like yeah i have heard of it it's never happened to me before and Ahab, yep. or Ishmael takes this moment to tell us, like, yep, this is a real thing, and everyone knows that this is a possibility, because, uh, uh, the magnet. let's see, um... Yeah, yeah, no, that line, go from there. Um, the magnetic energy, as developed in the Mariner's Needle, is, as all know, essentially one with the electricity beheld in heaven. Hence, it is not to be much marveled at that such things should be, which is like, okay, he's right, electricity and magnetism, fundamentally the same force, the idea that a yeah, violent yeah. electrical storm could, like reverse the magnetic polarity of a magnetized like yeah fuck with the needle's magnetism not implausible however the way that ishmael goes on to describe this yeah um he's like you know sometimes lightning has like destroyed the you know lodestone virtue which is to say the magnetism of a ship's needle but 
But in either case, the needle never again of itself recovers the original virtue thus marred or lost, and if the binnacle compasses be affected, the same fate reaches all the others that may be in the ship, even were the lowermost one inserted into the Kelson. So he is saying, yes, that like lightning strikes can demagnetize or like reverse the polarity of a uh, magnetized compass needle, needle. Yeah. but also if that happens, they never recover. And if the, the greatest compass on the yeah, ship is yeah, demagnetized, I mean, so are all lesser ones. Yeah, I think that's mostly because the binnacle compass is the largest. But yes, I, I do get the sense of like, if this most crucial compass is done, then there's no way there's any compasses on board, even if we'd had one stored deep in the bat in like sacks in the hold. I, I feel like there are possible physical explanations for what Ishmael yeah, is but saying here. I think but he's they... mostly just eliminating the idea that there might be a backup compass. Yes. So, uh... So, you know, uh, Ahab determines that the compasses are, like, precisely reversed at this point. So you could theoretically use them to navigate, yep, yep. and he does... And also, the fair wind that's been carrying them was the same wind the entire time. They merely got and turned around. Yes. They have always had a wind coming against them, pushing them away. So you might even see in this a little bit of a vindication of Starbuck. In the yeah, sense like that the, the... The wind has never been fair for Moby Dick in that sense. It has always been... Foul for Ahab and foul for Moby Dick, pushing the two of them away. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, um, but whatever Starbuck thinks about that, whatever were his own secret thoughts, Starbuck said nothing, but quietly he issued all requisite orders. So they're turning the ship around, they're sailing real east, uh, and, um... And here's where I want to actually draw the connection back to when the, how the harpooners appeared during the storm, Mm -hmm. where specifically... You know, um, the men are willing to overall go along with Ahab, saying, we'll sail by these turn needles. Uh, you know, some of them lowly rumbled, but their fear of Ahab was greater than their fear of fate. So, like, the weird omen of the reversed compasses is not enough to get them to act against Ahab. And, but as ever before, the pagan harpeneers remained almost wholly unimpressed. Or if impressed, it was only with a certain magnetism shot into their congenial hearts from inflexible Ahabs. So this idea that, I think, happens in the storm as well which is that the lightning of the storm the magnetic energies there none of that could have a- actually impacted them they were in fact prepared like ahab to do defiance to it and now they are untouched by this uh reversal of the compass as well and so that that's why i said that i don't think it's purely that they're reduced to elements i think that they're also being they're aligning with ahab's will in that way because his magnetism yeah. is shot through them i think maybe there's that there's a sense of like this claim Ahab is making that everyone's oath is as binding as his, everyone has become an Ahab. If that's true of anyone, it's true of yes, the Harpeneers. Absolutely. And it, and they were the first to take the oath, and they were the ones like that he raised up during that oath. So I think that symbolically that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but but it is clear that in, the way in which they are Ahabs is not that they are charged with his you know, loftiness of thought and his mission. It's just that they are they're charged with his, like, animus, his energy. He, they, they are, like, mechanically aligned with him. And I think that scene of Tashtigo, or... Uh, I think they're a little spiritually aligned with him, but no, you're right, not in the same way. I think that scene of Tashtigo saying, mm. you know, who cares about thunder... That's fair. That's very fair. ...supports <laughs> the idea that they just don't have, like, meaningful thoughts about this. Yeah, I... I think that the Harpooners are... have been presented differently at different times. Yes. And their degree, like... Queequeg, for example, is sometimes presented as having quite, you know, deep thoughts and closely interested in mysteries and is involved with this in part because he himself has thoughts about Moby Dick and then sometimes is presented solely as 
one of the harpooners who are Ahab's weapons. I think that when Queequeg is presented as having lofty thoughts, it's, I mean, you know, I think maybe the strongest moment of that, right, was when he was about to die. And that is when he was about to, you know, uh, like, remove himself from Ahab's mission, Hmm. from Ahab's power. I think... I think this is a broader question. I don't think it's one we should get into this episode because we've had so much this episode. Yeah, we can but talk more that's about the harpooners in other. There will be more, I'm sure, discussion of them yes, yes. and their their perspective. But yeah, uh, and, and yeah, it's really just a couple sentences and about that. And in any here. case, Ahab now, like you know, wants stomping the deck, figuring out what to do. His uh, ivory heel catches on. Apparently the qu- bits of the quadrant are still on the deck after the whole storm. So yes. It's only just scattered around. Um, yeah. And, and the um, the line, he, he says, you know, Thou poor, proud heaven-gazer and son's pilot, yesterday I wrecked thee, and today the compasses would fain have wrecked me. So, so. But Ahab is lord over the level lodestone yet. And so he devises to uh, both impress the crew with his power and recover the compasses rather than just sailing by these perfectly inverted compasses so he gets a like a small sailing needle like for the sailcloth of the um of the sails i keep saying sail um and he gets a harpoon not his harpoon but a harpoon has the blade knocked off so there's only an iron rod and by having a mate having starbuck hold it and he hammers it with a metal hammer so as to magnetize the rod and it's not and he's holding it up in the air so that it can't easily just you know uh, clear against the deck. I guess degauss. I don't know. Um, but yeah, he's you can basically do this. trying to yeah magnetize the needle by striking it between two pieces of metal. Yeah, and specifically first because basically my understanding of how you can magnetize an object by repeatedly hitting it is that basically you are shaking it in a certain way, in a regular way, so that all of the um, like in iron specifically, all of the iron atoms, which I believe are polar orient in a particular direction that's how you get an iron magnet that all the atoms in it are oriented um in their grid so that they have a south pole in one direction and a north pole in the other so by basically by hammering on it but not letting it ground itself you can cause an object to magnetize itself then having magnetized the pole he puts the needle on and further hammers that so that that will magnetize as well between the hammer and the pole and then he makes like mystic passes as he removes the needle which ishmael says you know um whether indispensable to the magnetizing of the steel or merely intended to augment the awe of the crew is uncertain exactly so he's ahab is revealing his mystic powers effectively his knowledge of the mechanical world his knowledge of the technical world is being presented as his like his mastery of the level lodestone, that his, you know, his incredible genius gives him secret knowledge and control over the physical world, you know, which is to some extent his Magian claim against God. It's, you know, yeah. Simon Magus. It's the, the classic Gnostic sorcery to re- reproduce miracles. Yeah, I feel like you made a little bit of a... Um, uh, An elision well, or a because, equivocation? Because Magian has been used in this text to mean... Right, it's generally... The well, contemplative and mis- no, no, no. I mean, yes, kind of, but but, oh, but no. also Zoroastrian, yes. right? And and the and what I, that what I has meant... been presented as fire worshippers, which is the opposite of what yes, Ahab yeah, 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 is, yeah, yeah. and the Sorry. opposite of what you mean by Magus. Right? What now. I what I mean is like Simon Magus, or who is a 
Gnostic figure who also invented the sin of simony because he attempted to buy a position in the early Christian church because he'd heard they could do miracles and he wanted more magic power. He later went on to found his own Gnostic sect. But anyways, the point being that Ahab, there's an association of Gnostics with sorcery and like and theurgy and so on historically and in the popular consciousness. And I think this is invoking that a little bit because I think this is invoking the idea of Ahab having occult knowledge that is also just knowledge of the physical universe that appears like bizarre and mystical to the sailors, but is really just him understanding, you know, having a deeper understanding, having a gnosis. Yeah. Also, um, I want to point out uh, the role that he has Starbuck play in this. Yes. Because he makes Starbuck be the guy to hold the the pole of metal. The iron rod. Or, yeah. yeah, sorry. No, yeah, the iron rod up as he hits it with the hammer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that Starbuck is meant to be someone who understands to some degree the the mechanical operation here yes, right yes i would like, be unsurprised like for like when earlier ahab is being like oh right the lightning turned our compasses that's a thing that happens that's understood starbuck is the person who he kind of uh cites for that and starbuck is like yes i i know about that yes. so i think that in a similar way we can reasonably reasonably imagine that starbuck somewhat comprehends like the magnetizing yeah. that's happening here i'm sure he knows that this is i'm sure that he has at least faith that this is purely mechanical that this is just a you know a piece of technical act but at the same time starbuck is being forced to be a participant in this like ritual that declares yes. ahab's mastery over magnetism yes and when he when ahab repairs the compass with this new needle and shows that it you know draws true by the sun he says look ye for yourselves if ahab be not lord of the level lodestone the sun is east and that compass swears it and then the sailors like you know in awe come in and there's this line one after another they peered in for nothing but their own eyes could persuade such ignorance as theirs and one after another they slunk away he is revealing to them truth that they are not fully able to understand or recognize but they see that the symptoms are as he describes and so they are forced to acquiesce to his knowledge and so now ahab has made himself like lord of directions here lord yeah. of the level lodestone and i and i think it it is you know worth noting that like as ahab is you know uh uh, performing his his magnetism ritual, but Starbuck looked away. Yes. And, and like, that's actually, I think, in some ways, like, a very, um, quite a thing to do when you're, like, holding up an iron rod and someone is whacking it with a sledgehammer right in front of your face yes. to look away. Starbuck, you know, just turns his head from this, from, like, you know, what is literally called the magic that would be performed, this, like, you know, technical miracle happening directly before him in his hands, and he refuses to witness it, but he does not refuse to hold the iron rod. Yeah, um, and uh, <sighs> I feel like it's worth mentioning, by the way, that on some level there is really no practical need for this. Yes, because you can sail by an inverted... Once you know a compass is inverted, you can sail by it just as well as a correct compass, precisely, because you can just say, okay, well, this now points south. Yeah, you just decide that the other side of it is the point. But uh, the the I guess the primary reason not to do this is um, to is, is the perspective of the crew. Yes, uh, they they think it's an ill omen and that sailing by inverted needles is a sign that something has gone dreadfully wrong. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, although I guess now that I'm looking at this, when Ishmael talks about this, he makes it clear that he thinks that the sort of psychology of the crew motivation is like secondary. Because mm-hmm. um, he says, accessory perhaps to the impulse dictating the thing he was now about to do were certain prudential motives whose object might have been to revive yeah, the spirits yeah. of his crew. Besides, the old man well knew, blah, blah, blah. This is not a... So, so... But I think it's interesting that the way this is presented is, well, the side motivation here is for Practical. Ahab to... It's, it's control of the crew. It's stifling their superstitions. But then what is the primary motivation? Because I don't actually think it's that, well, we need a functional compass. No, I, I think... think it's Ahab showing that whatever God can do, he can undo. Yes. You I know, think the that lightning, is... the clear spirit of clear fire has turned his needles. Ahab will create a new one. Ahab will repair what God has undone and thus sail onwards. In effect, this is this is an instance of him directly struggling with the acts of God or nature or however you want to think of it and succeeding through his tech through his gnosis, through his knowledge, through his understanding of the world. Yeah. And he is lord of the level lodestone. He has abrogated that authority for himself. And in fact, the final sentence of the chapter really speaks to this because the final sentence of the chapter and the last sentence of the section we're reading today is in his fiery eyes of scorn and triumph you then saw ahab in all his fatal pride so this is an act of hubris this is ahab making of himself the lord of direction and compass in the lodestone i think this is ahab as as satan as lucifer uh because his eyes are fiery and his sin is pride yeah i mean he is he has been devilish for chapters upon chapters the from the forge to now when ahab when ahab stoops to physical technical actions he's always presented as satan when he is working the forge when he handles metals when he you know hammers magnetism his subtle and devilish understanding of the of the mechanics of the world motivated by a mind higher or deeper than that world uh is always i think luciferian yeah, yeah, I think that's true. So yes, this is Ahab in all his fatal pride, and that's a bit of foreshadowing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, honestly, I think we can just stop there. Yeah, what tune is it we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? 